n'a pris pour dire je t'aime C'est le seul qui reste au bout de nos jours Les vœux que l'on fait, les fleurs que l'on sème Chacun les récolte en soi-même Au beau jardin du temps qui court Welcome back to Panastoria. Yeah. <laughs> It's the last, like, traditional episode of the year. Not of the season, but of the year. In this year 2020? Yeah, hopefully. I was about to say the year to end all years, but I'm like, hope, hopefully not. <laughs> I hope not, that would be bad. <laughs> <laughs> would not end well. Yeah, <laughs> anyway. You might hear us coughing a little bit. No, we do not have it. It's just dry as shit in my house. Because, yeah, here's a change of pace. We're back in the original... Uh, back in the basement. We're back in the basement, the original space back on the floor <laughs> so this is a surprise anyway so let's get into it we're talking today about quebec nationalism which is a thorn in the side of many canadians i guess yeah this is uh this is one of those topics where i feel like we're gonna get yelled at by someone <laughs> probably i mean we we did shit on alberta's and western separatism as well so true we are like generally speaking equal opportunity we, we hate everyone equally in this sense equal opportunity separatist haters separatist haters yeah <laughs> i guess i guess <laughs> i don't know speaking from my from my personal stance i am not i would not consider myself a nationalist in any sense of the word neither and also like i just don't agree with the arguments about separatism in alberta and in quebec so there's that any but, province really yeah does not make any sense. I mean, the world is already divided enough as it is. We don't need further division. I mean, I guess I already just spoiled the moral statement of this episode, but you know. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, I guess we could just jump into it. And yes, once again, as a traditional Panastoria thing, we have to go way back <laughs> to when basically when Quebec was first founded. So was, Quebec was first discovered by Europeans in 1534 by Jacques Cartier, and he claimed it for France, of course. Like, if you could not guess by the name that he was French, then you need to go back to school. I don't know. <laughs> and I also cannot tell you how much I had to learn about Jacques Cartier and Samuel Duchamplain in French immersion school. Oh, boy. <laughs> but it's, it's all right. Samuel Duchamplain was another French explorer who founded what is now known as Quebec. On his first voyage to Quebec, he had no official role in the expedition, and it was led by François Grave de Pont in 1603. However, Champlain proved himself a capable individual, making various geographical predictions regarding the rivers and lake networks. His reputation made its way back to France following the expedition, and in 1604, he was given the task of geographer during Lieutenant General Pierre de Gouardemont, expedition of Acadia which is for those of you who don't know is modern day the maritime provinces mostly New Brunswick and Nova Scotia they landed on what is now Nova Scotia and it was Champlain who was in charge of the construction of the expedition's temporary settlement during this time he helped discover the Bay of Fundy and St. John River before they established a fort on the island in St. Croix Riviere the team would spend the winter on the island. During the following summer, Champlain and the team sailed along the New England coast, reaching as far south as Cape Cod, 
While there were British expeditions to this coast before, none gave the amount of detail Champlain did in its aftermath. In 1608, Champlain set sail with de Mont again, and this time ex explored the St. Lawrence River. Here they established a fort in what is modern-day Quebec City. It was became the major hub for the French fur trade, and it was during this time Champlain and the expedition first clashed with the Iroquois, resulting in a centuries-long conflict between both groups. In 1615, Champlain established relations with the Huron First Nations, and the two traveled further into the interior of Canada. They engaged in battle with the Iroquois, and Champlain was wounded in the knee. He spent the winter with the Huron at Georgian Bay and Lake Simcoe. He spent his this winter writing extensively on the life, culture, tradition, and traditions of the Huron, which is the earliest known writings on First Nations life and history in the Western culture. Champlain's successful voyages reached the English at this time, and Charles I was eager to capitalize on the fur trade. In 1629, David Kirk was dispatched to the New World under the orders to displace the French. Champlain, undermanned, was forced to surrender his fort and return to France. After the signing of the Treaty of Saint-Germain-en-Laye, Quebec was returned to the French. Champlain returned and was named governor of the territory in 1632. However, his health began to deteriorate and he retired the following year. He died on Christmas Day, 1635, in Quebec City. In 1754, tensions between British and French claims reached an all-time high. This was largely due to continued infringement of French territorial claims by the American colonials. British settlers outnumbered the French 20 to 1, with 1.5 million living between the colony of Newfoundland and province of Georgia. The British also made claims to the highly desirable and profitable Rupert's Land, where the Hudson's Bay Company was dominating the fur market. Tensions also rose between the French and the First Nations. Once the British realized how much the Iroquois and the French hated each other, they formed an alliance with the Iroquois Six Nation Confederacy. War eventually erupted between New France and British America after Virginian militia, led by a then 22-year-old George Washington, ambushed a French patrol in May 1754 at Jumonville Glen. For two years, conflict remained between Britain and France solely in North America. However, in 1756, the war traveled back across the Atlantic and into Europe itself in what is now known as the Seven Years' War. The conflict was primarily over the conflict of British and French supremacy on the world stage. The British were joined by the Prussians, Hanover, Portugal, Hesse-Cassel, and others, while the French were supported by the Habsburgs, Saxony, Russia, Spain, and Sweden, amongst others. The war was fought in Europe, the Americas, India, and the Philippines. Basically, this was the first, the real First World War. The war resulted in a victory for the Anglo-Prussian alliance in February 16, 1763. The climactic battle in, North, in the North American theater occurred on September 13, 1759. The British, led by General James Wolfe, engaged the French, led by Louis Montcalm, on the Plains of Abraham and Quebec City. Both sides were equally matched, but in the end, the French were defeated and the British occupied the city. 
Both Wolf and Montcalm were mortally wounded during the battle. Wolf sustained three musket wounds and lived just long enough to hear news that the battle had been won, while Montcalm was shot off his horse and died at 5 a.m. the following morning. The British maintained control over Quebec City for the remainder of the war, despite French attempts to retake the city. In April 1760, the French won a major battle at the Battle of Saint-Foy, with the British retreating within the walls of Quebec City. While the French waited outside for reinforcements to retake Quebec, British ships sailed unopposed into the harbour, providing much-needed British troop reinforcements. Instead of risking their lives, the French decided to withdraw, and the city remained in British hands. The conflict came to an end with the signing of the Treaty of Paris of 1763, and there's a lot of Treaty of Paris's. This just happens to be the one of 1763. Many treaties were signed in Paris. Many. Yep. In it, the French were forced to secede all of its territory east of the Mississippi to Britain, with the exception of Saint-Pierre and Micoline, which are two islands off the coast of Newfoundland and are still part of France today. Literally, you could see Newfoundland, the tip of Newfoundland from these islands, but it's French. Furthermore, Louisiana was transferred over to Spain. The Seven Years' War and the French and Indian Wars, as it was known in North America, are direct causes to both the American and French revolutions at the end of the century. British and French tensions were instant upon the transfer of sovereignty. The French system was massively different from the British in nearly every single way. (laughs) The Northern Territory was renamed the Province of Quebec. In order to relieve tensions between Anglo and Francophones, the French passed what is known as the Quebec Act in 1774. This allowed Quebec to continue to use French customary law, aka Coutume de Paris, in private matters, while English common law would be used in legal matters. Furthermore, the Catholic Church were allowed to continue their collecting of tiffs, which are taxations equal one-tenth of something. That's literally the description I got was one-tenth of something, and I was like, okay. <laughs> okay. Helpful. If this is the most I'm going to get, then that's that's fine. Quebec was allowed to continue using the... Ser- I'm going to butcher the pronunciation of this. Seigneurial system where land was distributed in long line rows along rivers with landlords allotting the lands in what are known as manors. Following the American Revolution, British loyalists fled into Canada, mainly settling in Quebec. This increased the number of English-speaking Protestants in the region. This resulted in the Constitutional Act of 1791, which divided the colony in two along the Ottawa River. West became known as Upper Canada, set aside to be under English legal system, while the East was renamed Lower Canada, which was set to be French. I mean, we did talk quite a bit about Upper and Lower Canada in, yeah. <laughs> in, uh, in our Confederation episode. And yeah, it is Quebec, even though it's more north, it's lower because of the way that the, it's the way that the river flows. It's just like how Upper Egypt was in the south and Lower Egypt was in the north. I feel like there's also probably some level of like, we're the British, so we're in Upper Canada. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe. I don't want to confirm. I don't want to say that actually happened. No, I I don't think we should. Definitely not. But But, uh, it wouldn't surprise me if there was a small (laughs) element of that. (laughs) No, it actually wouldn't surprise me if the Quebec 
quad ticket that way. Yeah. <laughs> Me neither. Sorry, Quebec. I love Quebec. I do love Quebec. I love the Quebecois. Yeah. Uh, the Constitutional Act of 1791 in the British Parliament created the two colonies, like Jonah mentioned, Upper and Lower Canada, each of which had its own political institutions. Um, in Lower Canada, like we mentioned, it was predominantly French-speaking. So the French-speaking and Catholic Canadians held the majority in their elected House of Representatives, but were either a small minority or simply were not represented in the appointed legislative and executive councils, both appointed by the governor representing the British crown in the colony. Most of the members of the legislative council and the executive were part of the British ruling class, compro composed primarily of wealthy merchants, judges, military men, etc., who were all supportive of the Tory party. So from 1800 until 1837, the government and the elected assembly were at odds with each other on virtually every single issue, which is really not how government worked or should work. <laughs> it's kind of not any different from today. No, and but... Not, and I'm not just talking about between Quebec and the, and the federal government. I'm no. talking about everyone in, in general, the federal government. Pretty much, yeah. Except that, like, the difference was that the, those people actually, like, fully controlled Quebec at the time, whereas now, you know, the provinces do have some autonomy bit different but anyway obviously this caused a lot of tension and in particular it heightened anglo-french tensions and that helped to inspire people in lower canada to want to seek political reform and it wasn't just people in lower canada there was also plenty of unrest in upper canada as well turned out this system didn't really work well for anyone <laughs> so the par party canadian still held the most political clout they rebranded to be party patriot in 1826 and under the leadership of louis joseph papineau the party initiated a movement to reform a uh, reform of the political institutions in Lower Canada. The party's constitutional policy called for the election of the legislative and executive councils, among other calls for action, which were summed up in the 92, in the 92 resolutions of 1834. These resolutions essentially acted as a formal grievance against the colonial administration. To ensure that the views of the legislative assembly be understood by the British House of Commons, the party patriot had sent its own delegation to London in order to submit a memoir and a petition signed by 87,000 people. In the resolutions, the elected representatives once again re reiterated their loyalty to the British Crown, but expressed frustration that the government of London had been unwilling to correct the injustices caused by the past governments of the colony. The resolutions were ignored for almost three years, while the Legislative Assembly did all it could to oppose the unelected upper houses, while avoiding outright rebellion. Basically, it was just like a lot of tightrope walking to uh, maintain power, not have a rebellion, and keep the people at bay. Again, like government today. Yeah, yeah. Um, eventually, British Colonial Secretary Lord Russell responded outright to the resolutions and ignored them uh, and issued 10 resolutions of his own instead. So the movement of reform gathered the support of the majority of Franc Francophones, but also among many liberal Anglophones. A number of prominent characters in the reformist movement were of British origin, including John Nelson, Wolfred Nelson, Robert Nelson, and Thomas Storo, Br Storo Brown. There's a lot of Nelsons. Hard to keep them, hard to keep them straight. Like the amount of Marys there are in the Bible. Exactly, many, <laughs> many. Wow, we're just we're just losing everybody this this episode. Yeah, this is uh this is one of those we're getting through it. <laughs> <laughs> Two currents existed within the reformists of reformists of Party Canadian, a moderate wing whose members were fond of British institutions and wished for Lower Canada to have a government more accountable to the elective houses representative, and a more radical wing whose attachment to the British institutions was rather conditional to this proving to be as good as those of the neighboring American republics. So basically they were like, okay, this is fine, but if there's a better system, we want that instead. In 1837, Russell's res resolutions reached Canada. His resolutions rejected all of the Patriots' resolutions, no shit, 
and gave the right to the governor to take subsidies without voting in the assembly. It also said that the Legislative Council would continue to be chosen by the Crown. The Russell resolutions were adopted in Westminster by a huge majority. So this was a pretty big smack in the face to everybody in Upper and Lower Canada. Papineau continued to push for reform, though. He petitioned the British government, but in March 1837, he was rejected again by Lord Melbourne. After the Russell resolutions were announced, the Patriots at the Assembly decided to use their newspapers to organize popular gatherings to inform the population about the government actions. So, for example, they encouraged the population to boycott British products and import illegal products from the United States instead. Gatherings took place all around Lower Canada, and thousands participated. Papineau attended to most of the gatherings during the summer of 1837 to make sure that people would pressure the government only by political measures, such as the boycott that I just mentioned. Governor Gosford tried to forbid these gatherings, but even the people that were supposed to be loyal to him participated in them. By the end of the summer, many of Gosford's local representatives quit to show support to the Patriots. Gosford hired local people to try and tried to gain the Patriots' trust by choosing seven French-Canadian members of the Legislative Assembly. Didn't really work, though. <laughs> in September and October 1837, a group of Patriots who were more radical tried to intimidate the British government by going out into the street and breaking things around the houses of certain loyal people. And at the end of October, the largest of the Patriots' gatherings took place in St. Charles and was led by Wilfred Nelson. It lasted for two days and formed La Confederation de Six Comtés. Uh, Papineau organized protests and assemblies and eventually approved the formation of the paramilitary Société des Filles de la Liberté during the assembly. In his last speech before the armed conflict, he said that it was not, time to, it was not the time to fight yet. He thought there were still actions to take on the political side before fighting. Wolfred Nelson made a speech immediately afterwards, saying that he disagreed with Papineau and thought that it was time to fight. After the assembly, the Patriots were, were divided because some of them supported Papineau and others supported Nelson. On the other side, supporters of the Russell Resolutions called Constitutional Association, led by Peter McGill, also held gatherings around the province and wanted the army to return order to the colony. On November 6, 1837, Les Filles de la Liberté were having a gathering in Montreal when the Dorich Club, a loyalist group, began fighting with them. This sparked widespread violence and vandalism in the city, and arrest warrants were issued for those responsible for the fight. Plot twist, though. The people suspected were considered to be the leaders of the Assemblée de Cis Comté. The first armed conflict occurred in 1837 when the 26 members of the Patriots who had been charged with illegal activities chose to resist their arrest by the authorities under the direction of John Colborne. Arrest warrants against Papineau and other assembly members were issued and they left Montreal for the countryside for their safety. Papineau eventually escaped to the United States and other rebels organized on the countryside. On November 16th, Constable Mello sent to arrest three Patriots. He transported them from St. Jean accompanied by 15 people. The pres prisoners were liberated in Long Longy, where 150 Patriots were waiting for him. This victory gave the Patriots confidence, and they knew that the event meant that they could expect the army to show up soon. That was a problem, because while they were confident, they were also really not ready to fight an army. <laughs> <laughs> Turns out confidence isn't the only weapon you need. So led by Wilfred Nelson, they defeated a British force at Saint-Denis on November 23, 1837. He had 800 people ready to fight, half of them with guns. Support was wavering, though, so Nelson threatened, threatened them to make sure that they would not leave. Papineau was not there, and that was a surprise to all the people that were there to fight, so Nelson kind of had to crack the whip a little bit. The British troops did what they do best, and they beat back the rebels, defeating them at St. Charles on November 25th and at St. Eustache on December 14th, where the troops pillaged and ransacked the town. The battle at St. Eustache was the last battle of the rebellion. The British had expected a strong resistance and had brought 2,000 men facing around 500 to 600 rebels. Most Patriot leaders were killed or fled to the United States, including Wilfred Nelson, O'Callaghan, and Papineau, like I mentioned. 
St. Eustache was a significant defeat, and the defeat of the, re of the rebellions overall really can be chalked up to the fact that the Patriots were just not ready. They fought too soon. So Papineau was right. After the insurrection, the army was prepared for another armed conflict. It reorganized the whole thing, mostly in urban areas like Montreal and Quebec. The British army had 5,000 men posted in Lower Canada and knew that the leaders of the Patriot movement were in the United States, so it had spies and the American government keep them posted on their activities. Those leaders eventually did form a secret society called Frères Chaussaires and planned to invade Lower Canada. Two more major conflicts took place, one including that group, uh, but both of them were once again put down quite easily by the Crown. Lord Durham was dispatched by the Crown to investigate the causes of the rebellion. His report in 1839 recommended that the two Canadas become one colony, the province of Canada, to assimilate the French-speaking Canadians into the Anglophone British culture. For Durham, the fact that there were two groups, English and French, created a hostile environment and thought that the only way to solve the problems in Lower Canada was to assimilate the French Canadians to eliminate the infer inferiority feeling of the French Canadians and end all problems in that colony. He also recommended accepting the rebels' grievances by granting responsible government to the new colony. Lord Durham's report helped spur the movement towards confederation, making Canada more than just a colony. For more information there, go check out our episode on confederation, since I don't particularly want to spend more time on it. <laughs> yeah, that's moment. fair. <laughs> this is literally stuff that we had to learn in high school or junior high, like every year. Or high school and junior high. Or elementary school, too. I remember a little bit. Yeah. So I'm pretty sick of talking about it, so go listen to that episode instead. <laughs> anyway, obviously, confederation was important, though. And this movement in particular was quite strong in relation to French Canadian nationalism, which was very strong. French Canadians bristled at the conclusion celebrated by Durham's report about assimilating the inferior, quote unquote, French Canadian nation and struggled against the Act of Union of 1841, which joined Upper and Lower Canada. French Canadian nationalists fought hard for the recognition of French and Catholic rights during Confederation, which, speaking of the Catholic Church, played quite a large role in, played, well, it still does actually play a fairly large role in French Canadian nationalism, for somewhat obvious reasons of like, Cav, you know, Catholics versus Protestants. Uh, yeah. A lot of that comes in. But the Catholic Church is still prolific in Quebec, as the they were the really as the original settlers who founded New France were Catholic, and everyone else in France is Catholic, so makes sense. The Church was significant in the leadership of the colony and the colonization of the region overall. Once New France became a British ca colony, the Catholic Church continued to grow due to, the, due to the flexibility imposed on the British regime in Canada by the 1763 Treaty of Paris, like we discussed. Oh, wait, did you talk about, was that the treaty? Which one? 1763. Yeah. Yeah. Like, vaguely. Yeah. Again, there were many treaties in France. <laughs> <laughs> I think but the it, treaty that ended the, the American Revolution was also the Treaty of Paris. Like, pretty sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. So, anyways, there was a, the Treaty of Paris forced the British regime uh, in Canada to... Um, allow the protection of Catholicism and French-speaking people in Canada, so the Catholic Church was actually still allowed to grow and remain strong in Canada, and this perspective ultimately still remains. The form of nationalism that was pervasive in Quebec in the 1840s, which was inspired by the American and French revolutions, which that cannot be understated enough, the revolutionary period, I guess, really, of America and France is like really, really influenced Quebec. That form began to decline during this period, and it was replaced by a more moderate liberal nationalism and the ultramontanism of the powerful Catholic clergy as epitomized by Lionel Gru. Ultramontans rejected the rising dem democratic ideal that the people are sovereign and that the church should have limited influence on government. Gru and other intellectuals engaged in nationalistic sort of myth-making or propaganda. 
uh, to build nationalistic French-Canadian identity in order to protect the power of the church and dissuade the public from the popular rule and secularist views. They were invested in preventing the separation of church and state. Ultimately, that was their main goal. The group propagated French-Canadian nationalism and argued that maintaining a Roman Catholic Quebec was the only means to, quote, emancipate the nation against English power. He believed the powers of the provincial government of Quebec could and should be used within confederation to bolster provincial autonomy and thus church power, and advocated that it would, be, would benefit the French-Canadian nation economically, socially, culturally, and linguistically. Grew successfully promoted Quebec um, nationalism and the ultra-conservative Catholic social doctrine, to which the church would maintain dominance in political and social life in Quebec. The church and state remained intertwined in Quebec, and this form of nationalism remained really pervasive until the well into the 1950s. But there was a few other, so I'll actually come back to that a little bit here soon, but um, a couple other watershed moments during this sort of time period where the world wars had a really profound effect on uh, relations between French Canada and English-speaking Canada. Um, yeah, and these, these I definitely, I, I should clarify, I do understand the sentiment behind nationalism in Quebec. Yeah. <laughs> not not, not Alberta or Western Canada, no. but definitely Quebec. Yeah, that's that, that I was going to say. That is definitely, there's a main difference here, too, when we're talking about, like, this sovereignty movement versus, like, Western sovereignty, is that there's a lot more, like, legitimate grievances behind Quebecois sovereignty and, like, that movement. There's a lot more legitimate claims to, like, being unique and being, yeah, there's just, it's more legitimate. So, and in these two cases I'm about to talk about as well, I can definitely empathize and completely understand yeah. why things went down the way they did like I, I I get it so I guess for people who aren't really familiar when Canada entered World War One in 1914 we were still very much under the control of the British so we didn't really have the choice we, to we had to yeah we had to enter World War One so technically we there was like a formal declaration of war by the Canadians but it was like well we have to go so yeah <laughs> here we are I mean we were still a dominion under the British Empire exactly so. yeah so we had quite a lot of autonomy. We were, own, we were our own country, but we also, at the same time, were very much under the control of the British, as far as especially as far as the military went. Yeah, I guess the best ways we had a, a most, if not all, control in domestic policies, but not foreign. in foreign policies. Yeah. With that in mind, it's kind of easy to see why, immediately at first, very few French Canadians would actually volunteer for the war. This is for a couple of reasons, but. The experience of the first contingent who did serve in World War I suggested that any French Canadian who had volunteered could expect nothing but ill treatment for being, as for being a French-speaking Catholic in English-speaking battalions, filled with what they perceived as mostly Protestant men and officers who were unable to communicate with them. Young French Canadians who did want to serve sought out traditional French regiments of the Canadian militia, such as the Les Fusiliers, Mont-Royal, where the barracks life was in French, but the only command language was in English. So again, kind of a problem. They had to be turned away by the minister of the militia and his subordinates were obstinate in their refusal to mobilize these traditionally French regiments or create new ones. So there was just this like lack of willingness by the government to accommodate French Canadians. And as a result, there wasn't really a huge amount of support for wanting to volunteer or. The government continued to raise its expectations for volunteers though, expecting 150,000 men by 1915. English Canadians did not believe that the French that French Canada was providing its fair share to the war effort. Fewer than 5% of the volunteers by 1917 were French Canadian, despite making up 28% of the Canadian population in total. Many prominent Canadian historians suggest that the main reason for this was the Ontario government's move to disallow the French language instruction regulation 17. And there's obviously other reasons, but the biggest thing is that French, yeah, like Jonah mentioned, French Canadians did not see this as their war. The British crown is not their crown. While they weren't 
part of France necessarily. They also, they didn't feel like they were British. And yeah, so it definitely also we can say sympathize with those sentiments. Yeah, 100%. So political pressure in Quebec mounted along with some public rallies to demand the creation of French-speaking units to fight a war that was viewed as being right and necessary by many Quebecers, despite Regulation 17, in Ontario and the resistance in Quebec of those such as Henri Bourassa. Montreal's La Presse editorialized that Quebec should create a contingent to fight as part of the French army. The government finally relented, because um, they didn't really want that, and <laughs> the first new unit created was the 22nd French-Canadian Battalion. This solved some problems, but definitely not all of them. As we all know, World War I went a lot longer than anybody had thought, and was a lot bloodier than anybody had thought, and so volunteer numbers began to dwindle because people learned of the terrible conditions in the trenches and the fact that everyone was dying. No one really wanted to volunteer. And so Prime Minister Borden promised 500,000 men in 1916, but only 300,000 actually volunteered. Canada's population at the time was only 8 million, and so there's definitely an argument to be made that the British were uh, asking for way too fucking much of Canada. Um, we were already providing so much. Like, we fed the British yeah, Empire. We, exactly. And we sent over, like, how many troops did Canada send in total? It was well over a million. Yeah. And was... we have a population. We had, like, an eighth of the population went to war, at yeah. least. We lost, like, a pretty significant portion of the population to the war. Like, yeah. either the war effort or, like, died because of the war or... So eventually the Canadian government reached an impasse and turned to a different way to replace the soldiers. Conscription. Obviously, conscription really wasn't that popular. It was nearly universally opposed by French Canadians as they felt they had no particular loyalty to either Britain or France. Uh, led by Henri Bourassa, they felt their only loyalty was to Canada and not to fight an imperialist war. English Canadians supported the war effort as they felt stronger ties to the British Empire. And this is definitely, I think, like valid and extremely true. <laughs> conscription resulted in French Canadians feeling even more isolated than ever from the rest of Canada. They never fully supported the war effort, which resulted in the federal government expressing deep concern over French Canada's nationalist and anti-war stance. For the first time in Canada's brief 50-year history to that point, there were substantial arguments being made in favor of revoking the Constitutional Act of 1867. A divide between English-speaking imperialists who supported the overseas effort and French-speaking nationalists who believed that conscription was a second attempt to impose the conquest, therefore it needed to be resisted by all, at all costs. The federal conservatives had been adamant that they would not impose conscription, but upon his return from London, Borden met with his cabinet and announced that they would in fact be imposing conscription. Borden was convinced that Canada's war effort was weak and only conscription could make it respectable. His English-speaking ministers supported the idea, but his two French-Canadian French -Canadian ministers were hesitant. They fully understood the negative reactions that French-Canadians would have. French-Canadian nationalists opposed to conscription argued that it was either neither necessary nor successful and argued it would cause an unavoidable rift, or cause an avoidable rift, sorry, between English and French Canada. And it did indeed cause a rift, one that would have a significant impact on both federal and provincial politics for decades. Still sort of, like, yeah, can be no, felt. very much, yeah. In the end, yeah, conscription happened. Um, many French Canadians were conscripted and sent to war. And this issue would come back in the Second World War, despite... Prime Minister King's best efforts to avoid it. So the difference the, the difference here is that in World War II, Canada actually was able to declare war on our own. So we had control of our foreign, over our foreign policy, and so Canada actually notoriously declared war like a week after Britain, as like a symbolic gesture of like, we are our own country now. <laughs> While it was never really in doubt that we would support the British, it was like, we're gonna make this choice ourselves. As a result, there was less obligation to like, we weren't just being told, okay, provide 500,000 volunteers now, thanks. We didn't have to do that, that was up to us. And so 
King, for most of the war, did his very best to keep Canadian troops out of action. But during early periods in the war, he did use conscription a little bit to draft troops into the home front, basically. There was like a home officer or home army, and they were nicknamed the Zombies. And so they never... <laughs> yeah, so they were nicknamed the Zombies. They were a home... They were basically like a, a home defense. Basically the equivalent of Dad's army. Yeah. And so... King, that was the only context which conscription was used in, in World War II. The only reason, and the only reason he was able to get away with that is because he promised to keep those troops out of war. So he promised to not send them overseas. He would only send volunteers overseas, essentially. His attempts to keep troops out of action was also in large part to avoid needing to provide replacements for those troops. Ultimately, this was to the dismay of a lot more, of many hawkish Canadians who wanted to see Canada really get in on the action. There was a lot of excitement, I guess. But after campaigns in Italy in 1943 and 1944, and combined with a lack of volunteers, Canada finally did face a troop shortage. By late summer 1944, the number of recruits was insufficient to replace war casualties in Europe, particularly in the infantry. A couple of reasons for this, the biggest one being that more people volunteered for the Royal Canadian Air, For Air Force. I almost call it the Air Force. <laughs> <laughs> more people volunteered for the Royal Canadian Air Force than were actually needed for the Air Force because it was a lot more glamorous than the infantry. And so other services got more volunteers, and uh, that was a big one. So at this point, the 16,000 home defense draftees were square in the sights of everybody, either opposed to sending them or who were like, oh shit, we need people. So they kind of became like a lightning rod. Maurice Duplessis, who was a French nationalist, I will talk about him a little bit more in a minute, but he was a thorn in King's side for sure. <laughs> um, <laughs> He was very opposed to the war in general and very opposed to sending the home front zombies overseas. Uh, King was also very reluctant to send them overseas right away, but the Canadian army was desperate. So the second conscription crisis started in 1944 when Major General Con Smythe, who at the time was the owner of the Toronto Maple Leafs, in case that name is familiar to you, <laughs> then that's actually a big deal because it meant that he was a celebrity in Canada. That meant people really cared what he said. So he was invalided out of the army because of wounds that he sustained in action. He issued a statement on the front page of the Globe and Mail, charging that the infantry replacements in the 1st Canadian Army were green, inexperienced, and poorly trained, as the army hastily sent up cooks and clerks to replace men who had been killed or wounded, and who were themselves swiftly killed or wounded. Smythe stated that the solution was to send the zombies overseas as they had been training for the last four years or more. His status as the owner of the Maple Leafs, like I mentioned, made him a celebrity in Canada, and his letter attracted a ton of attention. The Defense Minister Ralston decided to personally investigate reports of major shortages of infantry by visiting Northwest Europe and Italy. So essentially what was happening through this whole time is there was underreporting of casualties. I'll kind of talk about it a little bit more at the end, kind of, but at the end of this a little bit, but there was a massive underreporting of casualties for various reasons, but in part because I think everybody wanted to keep like King happy and everyone wanted to, I don't know, keep keep political balance and things like that. So when he returned to Ottawa, he reported that the situation was actually far worse than he'd been led to believe in general. It was bad, but it was actually worse. It was so bad that men were being pulled out of the hospital to be sent back to the line without having fully recovered from their injuries. Shortages in the French-speaking regiments were even worse, owing to an even smaller number of volunteers. Rolson cabled King from London to tell him how bad it was, and King wrote in his diary that he was sure Rolson's cable meant he was coming back from Europe with the intention of making proposals involving conscription. He added that he was worried that sending any conscripts overseas would be a, quote, criminal thing, and that it would cause a civil war in Canada and open the opportunity for the United States to step in and annex Canada away from the British. King was a little paranoid, but... <laughs> yeah. I mean, I don't think it's unreasonable either to, like, truly fear 
what a civil war in Canada could do. And I also don't think it was unreasonable to fear a civil war, given how extremely tense things got in 1917. King was no dummy. Ralston returned and argued that the only alternative to not sending Canadian zombies overseas was to pull the army back from the front, which would have been humiliating to Canada. King objected to this assessment, stating that the Allies would soon win the war, so there was no need to send zombies overseas, and he could not care less about the shortages of manpower in the overseas Canadian army. The cabinet was badly divided between the two. King was worried about the Nova Scotia solidarity amongst three of his cabinet ministers, when Ralston and uh, two others, but he was pleased to find that Macdonald, one of those people, in particular, was more conciliatory to him than he expected. Uh, Macdonald was also worried about alienating French Canada, and since he also had his sights set on the Prime Minister's office in the future, uh, didn't want to create another 17-style split in the Liberal Party. To try and solve his issue, King went to Winston Churchill for a statement that Canada had done more than enough to win the war and sending the zombies was overseas was unnecessary. Churchill naturally refused this request. King then scapegoated General Stewart for underreporting Canadian losses in Europe by firing him. King also noted that Ralston and those in favor of conscription were from the far-right wing side of the Liberal Party, and all of them opposed his post-war welfare plans, which King decided was evidence of a, quote, reactionary conspiracy to bring him down. King was convinced that Ralston had stirred the conscription pot as a means to get him out of office and become Prime Minister himself. And I don't know how much of that is paranoia and how much of that's actually true, but that's what King believed. War losses continued to mount, increasing the pressure on him. Soldiers overseas wrote about their discontent with the Prime Minister and expressed that they would never vote for the party again, as they knew that King refused to enact conscription and therefore there were not enough replacements. There are a number of reasons why there were shortages, like I mentioned, but mostly just people joined other forces because the Air Force was cooler. (laughs) Um, King felt it was politically sensible to get rid of Ralston, as his French-Canadian ministers and the province of Quebec in general did not trust him anyway. So... King formally accepted the resignation that Ralston had submitted two years before, essentially canning him as a result, because the wait kind of meant that, like, okay, now you're fired. Anti-conscription general Andrew McNaughton was appointed in his place. Um, This was kind of a gamble from King, as other right-wing MPs might resign with Ralston, but fortunately for King, Ralston left alone. The country, however, wasn't feeling it. People were frustrated by the government and refused to help, and the publicity of the firing of Ralston landed the conscription crisis in the headlines. Some members of, the ca- of his cabinet threatened to resign if the zombies were not sent overseas. Finally, in November 1944, King relented and agreed to a one-time levy of 17,000 home front troops for overseas service. Many of the zombies deserted rather than going overseas. There was a short-lived mutiny in terrorist British Columbia at one of their barracks. The House of Commons put King to a no-confidence vote, but it was defeated 143-70, to 70, despite 34 Quebec Liberals voting for it. Uh, This vote marked the end of the crisis for King, so he kind of managed to get out of it, but barely. Uh, Public opinion in Quebec was outraged at the sending of the troops, but as King had done everything possible to avoid it, the political damage done to him was actually quite minimal. The Liberals were also held firm ground in Quebec, as the other parties were just not as appealing to Quebec's sensibilities. The Conservatives just weren't doing it. But few of the conscripts actually saw any action. Only 2,400 men of the 16,000 actually reached units on the front line. Unfortunately, 69 of them did lose their lives. Politically overall, it was successful for King as he avoided a long drawn out political crisis and he remained in power until 1948 when he finally retired. Yeah, so I mentioned Maurice Duplessis earlier as a pain in King's ass, basically. (laughs) 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 But I'm gonna talk about him a little more here actually, so, because he's really important. So yeah, he was an important 
He's an important pain in King's ass because he uh, essentially really brought Quebec nationalism like to the forefront in lots of ways. So the party he was affiliated with was called Union Nationale. Uh, the party started when the Action Liberale Nationale, a group of dissidents from Co the Quebec Liberal Party, formed a loose coalition with the Conservative Party of Quebec. All of these separatist parties are kind of like a weird hodgepodge of ex-liberals and conservatives. It's generally, though, the more conservative side of the Liberal Party, I've noticed. Yeah. The more right-wing side, as King feared. <laughs> anyway, so in the 1935 Quebec election, the two parties agreed to run only one, of, one candidate, candidate of either party in each riding. The ALN elected 26 of 57 candidates, and the Conservatives won 16 of 33 seats. Duplessis was the leader of the Conservative Party and became leader of the opposition. He soon rose to prominence as he used the Standing Committee on Public Accounts to expose the corrupt practices of the Liberal government under Alexander Techereau and force it to call an early election. He capitalized on his success and called a meeting at, Sher at Sherbrooke's Magog Hotel and received the support of 15 Conservatives and 22 ALN members in favor of a merger of the two parties under his leadership under the name Union Nationale. This new party had no formal ties to the Federal Conservative Party, and it ran candidates in every district and won a majority in the 1936 Quebec election. Even though he had run on ideas inspired, inspired by the ALN platform, he soon alienated the more progressive members of his caucus. The government adopted a farm credit policy in 1936, which was popular in the rural areas where the party's most loyal base was. This is very much like an agrarian party because they realized, much like many Alberta conservatives, <laughs> that <laughs> the conservative parties, that their whole bases are in the country for the most part. And so you've got to keep them happy. Aside from this, though, Duplessis, for the most part, protected the status quo in Quebec. He gave the Catholic clergy government money to provide public education, health care, and other social services. So in Quebec, there was actually no minister of health or education until, like, the 50s. It was up to the Catholic Church. Yay. So that went great, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, in 1939, he, was a, he lost, but he was re-elected again in 1944. And uh, as I mentioned earlier, because he was a royal pain in the ass king, and he was re-elected again in 52 and in 56. His regime of conservative policies in Quebec are known as Le Grand Noisseur, or the Great Darkness, because he let the Catholic Church run everything, <laughs> among other things. Duplessis championed anti-communism and opposed trade unions, such as the Trades and Labor Congress of Canada. He introduced several laws opposed by the unions, particularly one known as the Padlock Law. The Padlock Law prohibited the dissemination of communist propaganda by any means whatsoever. Any means whatsoever thing is actually really key. The legislation allowed the Attorney General of Quebec to close off access to property suspected of being used to propagate or disseminate this material. The law made it illegal to, quote, use a house or allow any person to make use of it to propagate communism or Bolshevism by any means whatsoever. This included printing, publishing, or distribu distributing any, quote, newspaper, periodical, pamphlet, circular, document, or writing propagating communism or Bolshevism. The problem here is that the law was extremely vague and did not define communism or Bolshevism in any concrete way. It denied both the presumption of innocence and the freedom of speech to individuals, and there were concerns by the unions that it would be used in order to arrest individual activists from international trade unions. Uh, two union leaders were arrested during the period, and while they were incorrect, there were also reports that this law was used against Jehovah's Witnesses, who Duplessis did notoriously not like. <laughs> he introduced more anti-union legislation in 1954, known as Bill 19, which would force union groups to expel any communist supporters. Any group would lose its trade union accreditation if there was a single member with, its, or with ties to the communist organizations or who supported the ideology. The bill was so unpopular that it actually lost the support of even the conservative Catholic union group. Wow. Yeah. Even they're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> okay. It's a little too far there, bro. 
His time in office was marked by many labor strikes, obviously. If you're going to enact laws like that, people are going to strike. There was uh, the Dominion Textile Mine, or Dominion Textile in Valleyfield in 1946, the asbestos strike in Estrie, and Mur Murdochville Copper Mine in 1957. Uh, Duplessis responded to all of them rapidly with force by, with force by the provincial police uh, to disperse picket lines and restore order. Big fan of strike breakers. Also, another reason why like I'm terrified of the idea of Alberta having a provincial police force. Yeah, me too. Among other reasons, but that's like another one. The strike in Murdochville did lead to a major victory for union rights and provided the impetus and inspiration for other labor labor leaders to emerge and energized calls for labor rights. So, he hated the he tried to stop the labor movement, but he did actually energize it in some ways. Duplessis represented the nationalism of the time, which people returned to after the war. This meant going back to the concept of a French-Canadian nation built upon Catholicism as it was in the past. The church and state were intertwined, and the church greatly, di greatly dictated legislature falling under matters of the state. This nationalism was also very conservative, and part of that meant like wanting Quebec to not be influenced by the outside world, and rather stay within their own borders without room for exploration. They really wanted to like seal themselves off in lots of ways. It was a closed-minded place during this period, wanting to keep their people in province untouched by the more progressive ideas around them. Even in terms of careers, the church governed the state in this aspect, and people were working conventional jobs such as the agricultural industry. The church controlled everything. Uh, Union Nationale valued and upheld these traditional values and meant the province would upkeep this long-established way uh, with changes only being made within the scope of conventional values. Duplessis did want to transform Quebec's economy, though, so he did want to industrialize, and he did manage that. And so, in a way, it's kind of funny because he, like, undid some of his own socialism by, or not socialism, sorry, his own nationalism by spurring industrialization and urbanization, and the faster development of that meant that there was more social stability and economic stability, and that kind of decreased people's importance and significance that they were placing on cultural and linguistic survival. You're less likely to fall back on those things that you always have known if you're feeling more stable and comfortable with the current situation or the future. Duplessis died in 1959 and along with his successor who died in 1960, this kind of actually set into motion the uh, end of those traditional definitions of Quebec nationalism. The 1960s, it was definitely different and it marked a change in what it meant to be a, a nationalist in Quebec. This period in the 60s is, in Quebec is often referred to as the Quiet Revolution, which basically was just a really effective secularization of the government and included the creation of state-run welfare programs and the realignment of politics into federalist and separatist factions. And eventually, there was an election of a pro-sovereignty provincial government. Generally, the Quiet Revolution term is referring to efforts by Liberal Party Premier uh, Jean Lesage and also sometimes Robert Bourassa, but it's kind of really meant to overall just talk about the pervasive changes that happened throughout the decade. A primary change was an effort by the provincial government to take more direct control over the fields of healthcare and education, which, like I said, had been in the hands of the Roman Catholic Church. They finally created ministries of health and education. Can't believe it took until the 1960s. Like, yeah. <laughs> what are you doing? <laughs> oh my God. They expanded the public service and made massive investments in the public education system and provincial infrastructure. The government allowed further unionization of the civil service and took measures to increase Quebecois control over the province's economy and worked to establish the Canada-Quebec Pension Plan. Hydro-Quebec was also created in an attempt to nationalize Quebec's electric companies, and French Canadians adopted the new name Quebecois, trying to create a separate identity from France and establish themselves as a reformed province. Quiet Revolution, Revolution was a period of unbridled economic and social development in Quebec, and Canada in general. 
Um, it actually paralleled similar events in the West as well. It was a byproduct of Canada's 20-year post-war expansion and Quebec's position as the leading province for more than a century before and after Confederation. So as much as they've always struggled with their place in Canada, they've always had a very significant place. They have a large population, which in a representation by population situation matters <laughs> <laughs> a lot. And also is the source of tension, many, many tensions between the West and East, as we discussed actually in the Western separatism episode. <laughs> The societal and economic innovations of the Quiet Revolution, which empowered Quebec society, also emboldened certain nationalists to push for political independence. Like I said, more economic and uh, social stability meant that more people kind of went away from that traditional conservative nationalism of just like, you know, keeping Quebec closed and wanting to fall back on, you know, how it had always been. And they felt more stable and more, I guess, optimistic with the way things were going. But it also sort of crystallized, I guess, the goal for most Quebec nationalists or most Quebecois nationalists, which was actually separation and sovereignty. So during this period, a number of organizations formed, and all of them were dedicated to the independence of Quebec. The first of which was the Alliance Laurentienne, which founded in 1957. In 1960, two other groups formed the RIN and ASIQ. These are obviously abbreviations for things, and I'm just telling you. They all have really mm -hmm. long names, and I just kind of gave up. Yeah. yeah, that's mostly why. Not going to lie, I just gave up. <laughs> the ASIQ, they're really like mentioned very briefly anyway. The ASIQ's Independence and Socialism Project was a source of political ideas from one of the more famous and violent sovereigntist groups, the Front de Liberation de Quebec, or the FLQ, who are actually the only ones in this group that really need to be paid attention to. <laughs> <laughs> sorry for the, well, are we, are we really sorry to the other groups? No. No. Uh, uh, but they're, you're not. They're just really not important. <laughs> um, the FLQ were founded by three RIN members who had met each other as part of the Réseau de Résistance and represented a militant part of the Quebec sovereignty movement. They were a loose association liberating or operating sorry, as a clandestine cell system with various cells emerging, emerging over time. The liberation and Charnier cells would become the most famous. Jonah will talk about those in a little bit. But in, from 1963 until 1970, the FLQ committed over 160 violent actions, including bombings, bank holdups, kidnappings, and at least three killings by FLQ bombs and two by gunfire. In 1966, they prepared the revolutionary strategy and the role of avant-garde, which outlined their long-term strategy of successive waves of robberies, violence, bombings, and kidnappings, culminating in a revolution. The history of the FLQ is sometimes described as a series of waves. And their ideology was based on an extreme form of Quebec nationalism that denounced Anglo-exploitation and co control of Quebec, combined with Marxist-Leninist ideas and arguments. Yay, communism. <laughs> yeah. The first formation of the FLQ contained members of the RIN, as I had mentioned, and some of them were wishing for faster action. The FLQ commenced their attacks on March 7, 1963, including bombing a railway that Prime Minister John Diefenbaker had arranged to travel on within that week. On the same day, leaflets with the aims of the FLQ were distributed widely throughout the city of Montreal. These leaflets had a crude crayon drawing of the resistance flag, along with the inscription, Suicide Commandos of the Quebec Liberation Front have as their mission to completely destroy by systemic sabotage. One, all symbols and colonial institutions, federal, two, or in particular the RCMP and armed forces. Two, all the information media of the colonial language, English, which upholds, or which holds us in contempt. Three, all enterprises and commercial establishments which practice tr discrimination against Quebec people, which do not use French as their primary language, which have signs in the colonial language, and four, all the factories that discriminate against French-speaking workers. So, like, I think we could agree with, like, the dismantling of the RCMP and the military, but beyond that, I'm yeah. out. <laughs> that was a very controversial thing to say. Yeah. Hi, bro. 
<laughs> Thanks for checking in, and now that now I'm assuming, bye, bro. Bye, bye. It was nice of you to check in. Okay, go. <laughs> the first wave of the FLQ lasted throughout the ni- throughout 1963, including strings of bombings. Like I said, these actions continued throughout the mid 1960s with the second th- and third waves. And in 1965, Charles Gagnon and Pierre Vallier combined their popular liberation movement with the FLQ, which also combined several other pro-sovereignty groups, which may have led to a more socialist FLQ attitude. By 1966, the RCMP had arrested many FLQ members and Gagnon and Vallier fled to the United States where Vallier would write his book. I don't really want to say this word. Fuck. <laughs> um, I, I can take the he bullet wrote, and no, say it's okay. it. He wrote, a, he wrote his book, White of America. God, I hate that I We apologize that. for using the word, but... Yeah. So I'm not really going to talk about the title of the book, but he wrote this really hateful fucking book. And the book compares the historical situation of French Canadians to that of African Americans at the height of the latter's civil rights movement. Vallier argued that the parallels between the two peoples as an exploited lo- lower class and called for an armed struggle of liberation against their common aristocratic oppressors. So there's a few things to be said here. First of all, the French Canadian experience obviously in no way actually resembled the civil rights struggle for black people and the fact that he even insinuates this is pretty fucking offensive. While there are plenty of legitimate claims of discrimination against Quebecois, people by their Anglo counterparts, we're certainly not denying that. It does not compare in any possible way. The perceived oppressions are not the same, and in any, any, any way, con- shape, or literally form. any way, shape, or form. For starters, one of them are racially based and the other is not. French Canadians came to Canada the same way the English did, to settle and colonize. They were not brought here in chains on slave ships from Africa. Also, good opportunity to discuss the fact that racism was quite pervasive in the nationalist movement in Quebec. and uh, Still is. Still is. And, well, white Canada in general, let's be honest. And so even, like, the attempt to link the two as having any kind of solidarity is actually kind of laughable. Like, It's laughable and... And just, like, offensive. It's, it's, <laughs> it's just... extremely offensive. And the, I've, we've, we actually have the... T- I did a class in university, and apparently Lindsay did pretty much the exact same class, Canada and the Cold War. So it wasn't necessarily about Canada's role in the Cold War. It was just... About Canada in that in the, period. In that period, like what, what went down. And we talked about uh, white and words of America. Shout out Tina Block, who's my professor <laughs> on that class. Yeah. I can't remember my... <laughs> this is so bad. But anyway, we, we talked about this book. And the overwhelming consensus was that the reason why he used such language as the title was to cause a stir and controversy. And I'm someone who's like, if you're making controversy just for the sake of publicity and controversy, like just for the sake of making it and to make a name for yourself, then you're a piece of shit. And yeah, the fact that he used, that he even tried to compare him, compare the struggle of the Quebecois as sim, as anywhere similar to the plight of, of, um, Af- the African people who brought over is horseshit, and you're a terrible person for. Yeah, I just honestly, it's like, like shocking. He's still alive, it's, so I'm telling. It's just so audacious, like the audacity. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, he's still alive, so if you're listening, you're a piece of shit. Uh, yeah, him and his his piece of shit ass was extradited extradited back to Canada in 1967. Also, by the way, he didn't get to live forever in the states. <laughs> um, but yeah, I just like, huh, that book is just. It's so bad. Like, yeah. and it's just one of those things. It's like, I think what makes it worse is that it honestly makes it probably for many people harder to empathize with like legitimate grievances Yeah. from French Canadians. Absolutely. Because like, 
I have no doubt that there has there's been plenty of discrimination against French Canadians and honestly even still like in West like there's definitely like I know some like just like some francophones who definitely have some like not great experiences all the time in western provinces because there's just sort of like a we don't like you kind of thing and like a lot of it is now related to like these this decades and decades of baggage between the west and the east more than anything else but it's just like this kind of this this book and trying to like make the quebecois experience more than it was also kind of makes it way harder for anybody to actually empathize with legitimate grievances. Oh, absolutely. And the other problem is that it's starting to get different now, but the people who are in who are leading these par- like parties like the Parti Québécois and uh Union Nationale, they were not the good like they were not a- an example of the uh underprivileged Québécois people no. who actually you know, they were trying to portray themselves as exactly. to be. A lot of these, even the latest, like Parti Québécois and Bloc Québécois, which we'll talk about later, their leaders are, and and supporters to a lot of extent, are like highly profitable businessmen. Yeah, and to be honest, like, I honestly think that like the book itself, just like its existence is kind of racist. In some well, it way. is. No, like, it absolutely it's is. It's just, like the, everything about it is just racist well the idea of like even the idea of like going back to like the idea of you even insinuating that you had anywhere near the same struggle is in an is racist it's yeah well it's yeah exactly and from a point of privilege let's let's be real here yeah and the thing that like i think stuck out to me the most in this is like they're calling the british like their colonial oppressors and it's like cool which so were you like <laughs> so were the french that came to canada and settled new france they were also uh, colonial unless settlers. your name was samuel du champlain and you were with his expedition then you were part of the problem <laughs> like you were here yeah, to colonize so because no i can't i actually cannot emphasize this enough samuel du champlain and his relations with the first nations was amazing i think he was a proper explorer who was more interested in like getting somewhere alive than absolutely than yeah, colonizing but... or caring very much about like the the moral stuff of other ex- that the the moral bad yeah, that yeah. went with exploration. But he definitely did a lot of an effort to maintain this relationship even after he was made governor briefly. But unfortunately, he didn't long, live long enough to. Yeah, but I mean, for the most part, like, I just yeah, I think the thing that stuck out to me the most was just like the arrogance of like our colonial oppressors, and I'm like, excuse me, <laughs> you guys are settlers all the same. Like, yeah, exactly. <laughs> shut up. Yeah. They were extradited in 1969, but, or 1967, sorry. Also in 1967 was a big year for Quebec sovereignists. So the International and Universal Exposition in Montreal, or it was a World Fair, Expo 67 uh, took place. And this was a really large moment, not just for Montreal and Quebec, but also for Canada. 62 nations participated and they set a single day attendance record for a World's Fair with 569,500 visitors on the third day. Expo 67 was Canada's main celebration during the centennial year and despite that it was not very well supported in Canada at first. I think it was largely seen as a big expense of why are we doing this? Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean it's the same thing whenever it, it's an Olympics uh, or anything Yeah, like suggest it for the Olympics, yeah. yeah. I do think the World Fair is definitely more important than the Olympics. <laughs> And I'm a sports person, so that's like a hot take yeah. <laughs> coming from me. That's not a lukewarm take. Anyway, Montreal's Mayor Jean Drapeau was pretty instrumental in making this happen, and he busted his ass and made sure it happened. It actually, like, happened on time, despite computer projections saying that there was no possible way that they would actually have everything finished, and they did. So, 
Good work, Drippo. <laughs> and company. But Expo 67 did not go off completely without a hitch. Our old friend Charles de Gaulle, president of France, was in Canada um, at the time under the pretext of visiting the Expo. Um, and he gave an address to a large crowd from the balcony at City Hall. Something kind of, I guess, like, I don't know. Important to note here is, like, <laughs> people... <laughs> the, the, not anyone really had a very good relationship with de Gaulle. Like, nobody really <laughs> liked de Gaulle. I don't think anyone trusted de Gaulle. Like, I don't think any world leader, like, really liked him that much no, as I, president. Like, I, they the, all dealt with him. And yeah, the Allies were very reluctant to work with him because he declared himself the leader of, the, of free France. But they're like, you weren't elected? Yeah. And he just kind of rubbed people the wrong way at every single turn. He managed to insult FDR on so many different occasions it's ridiculous it's honestly impressive like and it's... that particular bit drove not just fdr nuts but drove churchill into a fury because yeah. it was he was just like we need them so bad yeah. right now don't fuck this up for us <laughs> <laughs> so yeah de gaulle wasn't like the most popular and so like leading up to his appearance at expo 67 like the canadian government wasn't really wild about the fact that he was actually even in the country they were like okay guess you have to be here fine <laughs> yeah they weren't really wild about it so there's that context well the other thing about de gaulle is he was definitely very opportunistic he was 100 percent. so like this speech itself was actually very opportunistic he wasn't supposed to give this speech but people in the crowd chanted for his name because he was very popular in quebec and so he ended up giving a speech on the balcony at montreal city hall montreal city hall rhymes i know it's a weird way um, <laughs> it sounds really weird when you try to say but it i was like did i just say Montreal? hall like <laughs> <laughs> so anyways de gaulle wasn't supposed to give a speech but then ended up giving a speech because he's very opportunistic and people were very excited to see him so he is giving his speech and then at the end he concludes with the words vive le montreal vive le quebec and then added vive le quebec libre vive 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 le canada français et vive la france vive montreal Vive le Québec! Vive le Québec libre! Vive! Vive le Canada français! Et vive la France! Whereupon people went bonkers with approval, especially for the Vive le Québec libre. De Gaulle particularly emphasized the word libre as he leaned into his mics and enunciated it more slowly and loudly than the other elements of his speech. So for those who don't know, vive le Montreal means long live Montreal, long live Quebec. And then he added long live a free Quebec. And then he said long live French Canada and long live France. So like <laughs> really, really rubbed some salt in some wounds. So obviously it really angered a lot of people. The statement was a serious breach of diplomatic protocol. Even the French government was like, Bro, what are yeah. you doing? So it did a couple of things, including emboldened the Quebec sovereignty movement and sparked tensions between the leaders of Canada and France. <laughs> the crowd's response after the speech was very emotional and caused controversy because many English Canadians after were pretty outraged that, like, at the implied threat to Canada's ter territorial integrity. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, but yeah, when you got like someone as much as we don't like him, but as high of stature as fucking De Gaulle, yeah, He's saying that. Yeah, so Canadian Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson rebuked de Gaulle in a statement, which he read on national television after delivering to the French embassy, quote, The people of Canada are free. Every province in Canada is free. Canadians do not need to be liberated. Indeed, many thousands of Canadians gave their lives in two world wars in the liberation of France and other European countries. 
and then Justice Minister Pierre Trudeau, and uh, he's got some he's got some zingers that come up a few times in this one. <laughs> he uh, openly wondered aloud what the French reaction would have been if a Canadian Prime Minister had op- had shouted Brittany to the Bretons, and from then on, De Gaulle really didn't like him very much <laughs> because De Gaulle is from De Gaulle is from Brittany, <laughs> and uh, De Gaulle pretty much like hated Trudeau for the rest of Trudeau's, like, natural life, or de Gaulle's natural life. Yeah, and knowing Trudeau, Trudeau definitely used his words. Like He, he literally... He, he definitely used Brittany on purpose. He knowing. literally did. Oh, yeah, exactly. And so, uh, yeah, de Gaulle was not wild about that. <laughs> <laughs> de Gaulle was actually also, like I said, he got dragged by the French media for his breach of international protocol. Uh, Le Monde was their, the main French national newspaper, was pissed. They, like, they dragged his ass. And then um, de Gaulle also kind of caught some heat from people in Brittany <laughs> because he gave a speech in Brittany shortly after this. And at the time, Brittany was going through kind of a separatist movement of its own and kind of a nationalist movement of its own. And he kind of, you know, put it down. And uh, people were like, well, why are you for Quebec sovereignty and not us then, you douche? Yeah. So it um, really it's, it sparked it's, a lot of controversy in france yeah too, it really i don't think people realized it really kind of irreversibly damaged <laughs> his reputation in france yeah and in canada for sure well absolutely in canada <laughs> but in france because they're just like oh my god you <laughs> like psychopath. yeah <laughs> Fuck. we have a crazy person well i think us. it was like really the time that people saw started to see the real de gaulle he wasn't like he was no he wasn't longer for this... France. He was for him. Well, yeah, and he was like no longer this like war hero that he once was. He was just an opportunistic. Exactly. So while it enraged a lot of people, it also made a lot of people pretty excited. The Quebec sovereignty movement, for one, was pretty stoked because this was a watershed movement. The support of a foreign head of state seemed to add credibility to their movement in the eyes of many, including Quebec separatist Rene Lévesque. In October 1967, Levesque left the Liberal Party when it refused to discuss sovereignty at a party convention. He then formed a Mouvement Sovereignté Association and set about uniting pro-sovereignty forces. A year later, in October 1968, he succeeded when his MSA merged with the RN to form the Parti, Ke- Parti Québécois, or PQ. Later that year, the RIN would also dissolve and join the PQ. Things got real from there. Yeah, things definitely got, got real. But we mentioned Pierre Trudeau. You know what? Say what you want about Pierre Trudeau. He's still my favorite prime minister. I'm just going to go briefly through Pierre Trudeau's early career. He started his political career as a member of the Socialist Cooperative Commonwealth Federation. He became inspired to enter politics following the Quiet Revolution. He became active in various labor unions opposed to Premier Duplessis. And as a result, he was blacklisted, prohibited to take a teaching position at the University of Montreal. They then decided to become a civil servant in Ottawa instead, working in the Privy Council office under Louis St. Laurent. During the early 1960s, Trudeau's leanings went from democratic socialism to liberalism, and he joined the Liberal Party in 1965. He was first elected as MP for Mount Royal in 1965. Two years later, he was appointed Minister of Justice and Attorney General of Canada under Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson. Following Pearson's retirement in 1968, Trudeau announced his intention to seek the leadership of the Liberal Party in the same year. From the get-go, Trudeau established himself as the front-runner. He was very vocal and very much in touch with particularly the younger Canadians. 
and the younger members of the Liberal Party. He came in first in all four ballot castings until he was finally named leader with 50% of, on the fourth ballot. Judo called an election for June 25th and hit the campaign trail. His campaign gave way for what is now known as Trudeau-mania. <laughs> with his popularity skyrocketing with the Canadian youth, Trudeau aimed to expand participatory democracy and transform Canada into a, quote, just society, end quote. He also pledged to defend the newly implemented Universal Health Care Act and regional development programs. How do, how can I, for American listeners, he's like, Jer, he's like Jerry Brown from California in a way. Governor Moonbeam. <laughs> <laughs> the day before the election, Trudeau attended the annual St. Jean-Baptiste Day, which is in Quebec is as big as Canada Day is in the rest of Canada. Yeah. Like more people probably celebrate St. Jean-Baptiste. They actually don't really celebrate Canada Day in Quebec. They celebrate Jean-Baptiste Day. Yeah. So he attended the St. Jean-Baptiste Day Parade in Montreal. During the procession, Quebec nationalists began hurling stones and bottles at the grandstand Trudeau was seated at, shouting Trudeau au potu, which means Trudeau to the stake. Despite the pleas from his aides and security detail to take cover, Trudeau refused to move, defiantly staring the protesters down. This display greatly improved his popularity, and the next day, the Liberals won the election, bringing the Liberals into a comfortable majority. So he was a... Trudeau was a badass. Like, he was. He did certainly alienate large parts, portions of the country throughout his period as prime he minister. He definitely but did, but he, and it was because, he, like, I mean, he did... He's he an antagonist in every single oh, way. Oh, yeah, but in a lot of ways, he did it for the right reasons, although... He's... Like, um, I kind of view him a little, actually a little bit like a Huey Long figure in some ways, some ways where it's like, he got things done, it just wasn't always pretty. <laughs> no, definitely not. Trudeau was a staunch federalist, rejecting the prospect of Quebec sovereignty for his entire political career and pretty much his entire life. However, he understood the tensions between Anglophone and Francophone Canada and the need to douse these flames. So he was not a, he was not a dumb man at all. All. Well, I think him being from, he actually probably had a better understanding than many because he's from Quebec. Exactly. His first major act. And is, sorry, and is a francophone. And oh, is francophone, and yeah. that makes a big difference. Absolutely, yeah. His first major act as prime minister was to push through the signing of the Official Languages Act, making French and English the co official languages of Canada. These were based on recommendations by the Royal Commission on Bilingualism and Biculturalism established under the Pearson government. This act was supported by both the Progressive Conservatives and the NDP. This resulted in the francophone portion of both the civil service and military to double, which actually caused controversy in the rest of Canada, particularly, surprise, surprise, Western Canada. <laughs> who viewed it as bringing English to a disadvantage. Um, spoiler alert, it did not. <laughs> Someone getting more rights does not mean you're getting less rights. It's not pie. Yeah. It's it's the same with this. Just because French Canadians are getting more of an opportunity to you know speak French elsewhere in Canada when they need to, does not mean it's going to diminish the amount of English workers in English provinces. You know, because... That doesn't make sense. <laughs> but anyway, just as the year would come to a close, the FLQ once again began to emerge. 
Just after midnight, as the church bells were ringing in the New Year's, bombs detonated around Montreal. One blew up outside a federal building and a second on the east side of Montreal City Hall. A third was on the west side of City Hall, but it was diffused before detonation. Just over a month later, on February 13th, a bomb detonated inside the Montreal Stock Exchange, injuring 27 people and causing mass damage to the building, upwards of a million dollars worth. This is the largest attack by the FLQ during its bombing campaign. And I gotta say, having read about how massive this bomb was, it's a miracle nobody died. September 28th saw further bombings with the FLQ bombing the home of Montreal Mayor Jean Drapeau. The FLQ had targeted Drapeau in part to his cost overruns during the construction for the Olympic Games and the Expo, which left the city in $1 billion worth of debt, which actually took over 30 years to completely pay off. Montreal's had a bad rap with corrupt mayors. Um the province has had a corruption problem well yeah but much all <laughs> particular yeah. so the soviet kgb did make contact with the flq because you know the kgb of made course. contact with everybody but it was decided the organization was too disorganized to be considered worth aiding however the kgb became concerned they would be linked to the flq and began a disinformation campaign to falsify a cia false flag operation with the flq as a front the KGB leaked a forged, forged CIA document, seemingly pinning FLQ attacks on the CIA to the Montreal Star, which even convinced Trudeau such an operation had taken place. However, it has since been discovered to have been nothing more than a KGB ploy. So it's kind of funny because the KGB is like, they took the FLQ seriously, realized they probably didn't need to, and then were like, oh shit, we can't be attached to this. Let's yeah. try and make it look like someone else thought they took it seriously. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not the like it, it's not far fetched for the CIA to actually have because the CIA did at points boost up leftist organizations to destabilize. Look up what they did with Fidel Castro because yes, they did aid him at one point. But anyway, on May it's just 5th, hilarious that it would be the FLQ. I know, right? <laughs> on May fifth, nineteen sixty. Well, it's also funny that they're just like, oh, <laughs> they're like, okay, oh. these aren't the. The, shit. Never okay, mind. shit. Yeah, these guys are just Not they don't they have no idea what they're doing. Not what we thought they were. Yeah. On May 5th, 1969, National Airlines Flight 91 was en route to New York's LaGuardia Airport from Miami. On board were Jean-Pierre Charette and Alain Allard, who were either members or associates of the FLQ, it's not really certain. Both men were fleeing persecution prosecution in Canada. As the plane flew over the ocean, Charette forced a flight attendant at gunpoint to the cockpit door, demanding the pilots divert to Cuba. This was one of hundreds of national airline flights that were hijacked and forced to divert to Cuba in 1969. Yeah, National Airlines had a really bad year in 1969 because of how many... I, I was One of the stories I was reading, literally, uh, the uh, flight attendant had a gun pressed at her. And she all and she just rolled her eyes and said, "Oh, not again!" Like, because it, it was not the first time that year yeah. that she she had been, been in a hijacking. <laughs> My dad actually um, knows a guy who flew for the CIA during Vietnam because he got caught flying people out of Cuba. But he got caught by the CIA flying people out of Cuba and started flying refugees out of Cuba. So they were like, "You can fly for us in Vietnam, or you can go to Leavenworth." And so, <laughs> so he went to Vietnam. 
But he said, and then afterwards he flew cargo planes and stuff, but he was telling my dad about like how this, like he just like various times that people tried to hijack him and just like things like that. And it was just like eventually the same thing where he's just like, oh, come on, like really <laughs> again? <laughs> well, it's like, well, they're not actually going to shoot us. <laughs> yeah. Because <laughs> that wouldn't make sense. No. But yeah. By 1970, the FLQ had detonated over 950 bombs, mostly in mailboxes in Anglophone areas and in the Westmount neighborhood of Montreal. So, yeah, a lot of people didn't get their mail. I mean, people got hurt, don't get me wrong, uh, including a, a police sergeant was badly wounded trying to defuse a mailbox bomb. Uh, it reminds me of the song. There's a song by Alexis on Fire called Mailbox Arson. Kind of reminds me of that. The RCMP also became targets because, you know, duh. <laughs> However, 23 prominent FLQ members were now convicted of various crimes, including murder and now serving prison sentences. Furthermore, two FLQ members were arrested after a sawed-off shotgun and a communique announcing the kidnapping of an Israeli consul was discovered in their car. Yeah, you can't really talk your way out of that. A general election for Quebec was held on April 29, 1970. In a surprise victory, the provincial Liberal Party defeated the Union Nationale. This election also marked the first time the Parti Québécois entered the National Assembly. Robert Bourassa was sworn in as Premier. The same year, the FLQ would launch its largest campaign yet. On October 5th, two delivery men arrived at the home of British Trade Commissioner James Cross. When he answered the door, the men forced their way inside and kidnapped Cross at gunpoint. They were FLQ in disguise. He was brought to an FLQ safe house and held captive. Authorities receive, received the FLQ manifesto with various demands to be met in exchange for Cross's release. This is what this is an actual quotation from the manifesto, which is still available free to read online. It says, quote, Total independence for Quebecers united in a free society and free for good of the clique of ferocious sharks, the patronizing quote-unquote big bosses, and their henchmen who have made Quebec their private hunting ground for cheap labor and unscrupulous exploitations, X, end quote. Demands were, for Cross's release were, one, release of the 23 quote-unquote political prisoners, Two, the FLQ members out on bail should be allowed to leave Quebec should they choose. Three, the family members of the quote-unquote political prisoners and those out on bail should be allowed to leave Quebec also. $500,000 in gold. The manifesto to be broadcast and published. The names of the police informants who ratted out various FLQ members to be published. The kidnappers would be given safe passage to Cuba or Algeria, accompanied by their lawyers. The 550 Lapayim postal workers fired for the support of the FQ were to be reinstated and for the immediate end to all police search activities. On October 8th, CBC allowed Radio Canada to air the live reading of the manifesto. The manifesto also threatened Barossa saying he, quote, will have to face reality. 100,000 revolutionary workers armed and organized, end quote. In reality, it was somewhere around 700 members of a scarcely organized or associated cells. Like, they, 
we can't really emphasize how uncoordinated the the FLQ actually was. Two days after the manifesto's reading, Deputy Premier Pierre Laporte was at his home and was playing football with his nephews in the front lawn when four men of the Chernier cell approached him, Francis Simard, Bernard Lorty, and brothers Paul and Jacques Rose. They insulted him by calling him Minister of Unemployment and Assimilation before taking him at gunpoint to their car. The October crisis had begun. Very shitty thing to do, kidnap kidnap someone in front of their young nephews. Like, what yeah. the fuck? <clears throat> yeah. Pretty much none of the things the FLQ did in this particular uh, time were good, though. So anyway. Um, on October 12th, the federal government requested uh, Gilles Turquart. Or Giles Turquart? <laughs> Is it Gilles? Or Gilles, Gilles? Is it Gilles? Gilles. Okay, I was like, Giles. <laughs> 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 I can't remember. Yield does sound a lot better, honestly. Yield. I like Giles. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, uh, the federal government requested that Gilles Turcourt and Van Deuce mobilize the um, guard. Van Deuce are the Van Deuce. I was just like, Sorry. No, it's okay. The federal, yeah, they requested Gilles Turcourt and the Van Deuce mobilize to guard the federal property in and around Montreal. The same day, the FLQ's lawyer, Robert Lemieux, is tasked with, or was tasked with negotiating the release of Laporte and Cross on their behalf. The Quebec government appointed Robert Demare as their representative. On the same day, military personnel were also sent to guard the parliament buildings and other federal offices and residences, causing some controversy amongst the media and public. On October 13th, Trudeau was stopped while entering Parliament Hill and confronted by journalists of the CBC. The reporter, Tim Ralph, pressed Trudeau to explain his reasoning for the decision to use federal troops as guards, even claiming... Oh my god. Even claiming colleagues of his were harassed by soldiers. However, Trudeau maintained a calm and matter-of-fact attitude towards the situation, stating it was a necessity in order to maintain security of government officials. When asked how far he would go, Trudeau had this to say. In the kind of society that you yeah, live in. Well, there's a lot of bleeding hearts around who just don't like to see people with helmets and guns. All I can say is uh, go on and bleed. But it's more important to keep law and order in this society than to... Uh, uh, be worried about uh, weak-kneed people who uh, don't like the looks of, uh, of a at, at any family. cost? At any cost? How far would you go with that? How far would you extend that? Well, just watch me. Just watch me is now a famous phrase in Canada, becoming almost culturally significant. If you literally just say the words, just watch me, people know exactly what you're referring to. The interview has also showed Trudeau's willingness to do what he believed was right due to the growing threat posed by the crisis. It kind of just also reinforced Trudeau's, like, reputation as someone who would do what he thought was the right thing to do no matter what yeah and he didn't really give a shit what the consequences were yeah he was you you watch this interview and you definitely hear his no-nonsense attitude because like he he uh what's funny is at the beginning of that like he the guy's like well my friends have been harassed and he's like well what are your friends doing yeah and and he's like they were taking pictures and Trudeau's just like aha (laughs) (laughs) yeah he um Actually, like, wrote a whole paper about this, like, speech, basically, in my Cold War class. <laughs> um, and, yeah, it's just, like, it definitely showed, I think, to the country in particular, but, like, probably the world, because I'm sure the world was watching, just how, like, Trudeau's like, don't give a fuck. Yeah. Well, it's, like, people can criticize the use of federal troops as much as they want, but it's, like, you got to remember, like, we, we know now how disorganized and uncoordinated the FLQ were, but they didn't know that at the time. No. All they knew is that two 
high-ranking officials, one of them who was a foreign official, yeah. were kidnapped. And they didn't know who else was going to be kidnapped. They were receiving threats of other politicians, like towards other politicians, both federal and provincial. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's an international crisis. Like <laughs> It really is, yeah. <laughs> you you kind of got to like roll with it. Well, and also at the same time in Northern Ireland, you got the IRA running around and the various other paramilitaries running around. It's like, well, who's to say that something similar is not happening here right now? Yeah. So it's not, it's definitely not a far-fetched thing to think that there could be a, possibly a massive insurrection about to occur. No, no. Especially, too, when you just take into the context, like, the times also. Like, this is, like, the mid-60s. This is high paranoia <laughs> in general amongst, like, spies and covert operations from the Soviet Union and just the general fear of, like, your enemies, I guess. It was a general time of paranoia. And I think also, I think, like, the fact, like, Trudeau's being from Quebec actually really showed through in this whole crisis, too, with his, like, unwillingness to, like, because he knew how important it was to, like, quash to stop this to like quash yeah. any separatists to quash any like any of that that whole movement in general and not only just the like the militant side of it but like if we crush them it's like we don't give anybody any hope for <laughs> yeah absolutely. <laughs> negotiations with the flq quickly stalemated uh lemieux had been appointed by the flq to represent them but he was serving a jail sentence for obstruction of justice <laughs> Not very he's not the but you're gonna find out very quickly he was not the most not capable the of lawyers <laughs> so this meant that the first few meetings between lemieux and demers had to be done from the jail which is not really great for your credibility <laughs> negotiations officially began on october 13th in an office at hydro quebec at a hydro quebec building in montreal lemieux seemed most concerned with obtaining the safe passage of the members to algeria or cuba followed by a two-hour explanation on how lemieux knew all the flq members <laughs> That night, Lemieux held a press conference announcing the negotiations had broken down to the surprise and confusion of Demers. The next day, Demers called and demanded an explanation from Lemieux, and the only explanation he got was that Lemieux had changed his mind. The same day, Lemieux publicly called for the University of Montreal students to boycott class in support of the FLQ. Yeah, Lemieux was... Lemieux's... Idiot. Lemieux's... Well, no, he's just a... He's, yeah, he's an idiot, but he's like a, a, a piece of shit as well. <laughs> yeah. He's useless and he's a piece of shit. Yeah. <laughs> um, on October 15th, the government of Quebec made a formal request for federal troops to be mobilized using the National Defense Act to aid civil law enforcement. This motion was agreed to by all opposition parties, including the party Quebec law. On the same day, the University of Montreal controversially allowed members and leaders of separatist groups to speak publicly on campus. Lemieux later organized the rally at the Paul Sauvé Arena. 3,000 students arrived at the rally, and trade union uh, Michel Chartrand declared, quote, we are going to win because there are more boys ready to shoot members of parliament than there are policemen. That's, like, terrifying no. to hear. Like, <laughs> it's not true, but it Jesus was terrifying. Christ. Especially, it's like, okay, there's a large crowd. This guy's saying this to the crowd. Yeah. Fuck. <laughs> that's, uh, that's, that's, yeah, that's inciting some, that's going to incite some shit. News of this rally sent shockwaves across Canada, and panic ensued that a mass insurrection was about to ignite in Quebec. For valid reasons. Um, on October 16th, Trudeau and Parliament officially enacted the War Measures Act, granting emergency powers to Quebec, which allowed for the detention of individuals suspected of involvement in the FLQ and the kidnappings. The implementation of the act was supported by a majority of Canadians, but faced opposition from NDP leader Tom Tommy Douglas. Um, he believed that the government was using a sledgehammer to craft a peanut and that the War Measures Act was like a massive overreaction to what was happening and that implementing the War Measures Act for such a situation was really just a slippery slope for the government to be able to suspend civil liberties for 
no reason. Yeah, and the other thing is that <clears throat> that I that we forgot to mention is that the War Measures Act, when it's implemented, it's implemented not just in Quebec. All it has to be it's all, all of Canada. Canada. Was it ever enforced in all of Canada? No. So yeah, Tommy Douglas was like the only person who was truly against it. Although some people would regret agreeing to it later. Um, on October 17th, the body of Pierre Laporte was found in the back of a car near St. Hubert Airport. The FLQ's Sharon Ansel announced that they had been the one who executed it, or executed him. Later, the Liberation Cell announced that they had suspended their death sentence against Cross and reiterated their demands for his release. The circumstances surrounding Laporte's death remain unclear and controversial. Uh, it has been claimed that the, by the Charnier Cell that members Charnier Cell members that he was killed accidentally during a struggle, while leader Paul Rose was claimed or has claimed that he killed him in an act of desperation after Laporte attempted to escape. Either way, Laporte died. Not great. I don't believe Rose. I don't believe Rose at all. I think he did it intentionally. Yeah, I agree. The police officially issued arrest warrants for Paul Rose and Mark Carboneau for their suspected involvement in the kidnapping and murder of Laporte. Yeah, by October 20th, 1,628 raids had been conducted by the police under the War Measures Act. On October 26th, CKLM Radio allowed Barbara Cross, James Cross's wife, to speak live on the air to the kidnappers. She said, quote, to those holding my husband, I wish to express my confidence that, as a victim of circumstance, he will be well treated. I entreat them to free him without any further delay. In order to ease the controversy, the Quebec Justice Minister allowed officials from the Quebec Civil Liberties Union to visit and speak with persons detained under the War Measures Act and to investigate their well-being to make sure that they weren't being abused. On November 2nd, the federal and Quebec government made a joint offer to $150,000 to anyone who could provide information that leads to the arrest of any of the kidnappers. And on November 6th, acting on a tip, police raided the location of the Chenier cell. All except Bernard Lordy managed to escape. Lordy was charged with kidnapping and murder, and the remaining three managed to evade capture by hiding in a hidden room behind a false wall, then escaped undetected the next day. On November 21st, a letter from Cross, dated on the 15th, was received by authorities confirming he was still alive and relatively good shape. It was believed that this was done out of fear by the Liberation Cell. Yeah, the thing about the Liberation Cell is they had no idea that, like, they didn't coordinate the kidnappings again. They just knew who they were going to kidnap, basically. But I basically what happened is once they found out Laporte was killed, they they panicked. Because yeah. as far as as far as I know, like from just my own research and whatnot, the Liberation Cell were a lot more peaceful than the Chenier Cell, yeah. and they didn't want to kill Cross. And so once they heard Laporte was killed, they're like, "Oh shit, <laughs> we 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 better." Um, hands down like we better make sure that people know that he's still alive and also i forgot to i forgot to put this in but several announcements that cross had been found dead which were later proven not true but they were already broadcast on the news so people yeah. panicked and the sh and the liberation cells panicked obviously for obvious reasons <laughs> Early in the morning of December 3rd, Demers received a phone call saying that he needed to go immediately to uh, the Sorette de Quebec HQ, as the location of Cross's whereabouts had been discovered. The house was surrounded by the police the night before and now wished to, or wished to negotiate Cross's safe release. Uh, Demers met with lawyer Bernard Mergler and negotiations began. Uh, during the talks, uh, Cuba sent word that they would agree to the safe passage of the kidnappers. 
Following this announcement, James Cross was finally released after nearly two months, 62 days, in captivity. The kidnappers were permitted to travel to Cuba. Um, on December 23rd, Trudeau announced that all troops mobilized in Quebec would be withdrawn by January 5th, 1971, following no FL further FLQ activity. On December 28th, the remaining members of the Chernier cell were discovered in a tunnel in St. Luke. The three, the three of them surrendered and were charged with kidnapping and the murder of Pierre Laporte, officially ending, ending the October crisis. Paul Rose was found guilty of kidnapping and murder and was sentenced to life in prison. His brother Jacques was found guilty of accessory after the fact and was paroled in 1976. Uh, Francis Simard was found, also found guilty of murder but was paroled in 1982. He published a book about the events in 1982 but then died in 2015. The remaining members who were flown to Cuba later returned to Canada and pled guilty at trial to kidnapping in relation to James Cross. The use of violence by the FLQ led to a major decline in their popularity as well as the popularity of other organizations who advocated such extreme methods. Uh, they received criticism across the spectrum, including from major Quebec nationalist figures. Many persons who were members of the FLQ renounced their membership following the murder of Laporte. After this, it became evident the road to independence would be paved through political and democratic means. So, like we said, the response to the crisis by the provincial and federal governments still spark a lot of controversy because it's the only time in Canadian history that the War Measures Act had been put in place during peacetime. Um, so Tommy Douglas, uh, like we said, um, was very critical because he believed it was excessive in advising the use of the War Measures Act and just said that it was a slippery slope. It was a, a, a dangerous precedent to set. And we had mentioned that everybody else had supported Trudeau, but federal conservative leader Robert Stanfield actually like re later regretted agreeing to allow the War Measures Act to be implemented. And yeah, like I just said, it marked a significant loss of support for the violent wing of the Quebec sovereignty movement um, because they had, been, they had gained a lot of support through the 60s. Um, I think people were like really sick of how things were going and were pretty like energized by these groups, especially since a lot of those groups weren't really doing anything very serious, right? It was like vandalism and things that you could kind of like right away as yeah it was the flq that was the one exactly so or like it it's really hard to tell whether or not like all of these like mailbox bombs were actually the flq or just wannabes claiming to be the flq it was it's really yeah. difficult yeah so i think that like they gained a lot of popularity because they were actually doing something right they were trying to do things and they were trying to take action and that energized people but eventually but the october crisis really put a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths obviously because it was like uh we didn't want that like <laughs> and obviously things like that are just gonna get you more pushback than gains so yeah and it's also like despite how unpopular laporte was yeah he, he was somewhat unpopular yeah it was like a 50 50 kind of split it's one of those things where you still don't want your worst enemies to get no kidnapped. like you know? he like, wasn't hated that enough like for people to like yeah. Wish his death. So is his death really sent shockwaves around? Yeah. Well, it's like you, it's like you, you don't like him as a politician. You don't really want him in power, but you don't want anything bad to happen to the guy either necessarily. No, like, and, <laughs> and like the same, it's like after he died, people, even Quebec nationalists, like, like, yeah. well, even not politicians, but just like regular citizen Quebec nationalists were demanding that Cross be released. Yeah. Yeah. So the... The FLQ lost a lot of support, but that didn't mean that the sovereignty movement was dead by any means. It basically just shifted, and pretty much all of the support that then just went towards uh, gaining independence by political means, so that included supporting the Sovereignist Parti Québécois. Uh, the PQ, 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 
Um, the, P <laughs> <laughs> the PQ faced its first electoral test in 1970, winning several seats. Uh, it lost one seat in 1973, but due to the decimation of the other parties, particularly Union Nationale, the PQ was able to become the official opposition. Uh, René Levesque was still unable to win a seat, <laughs> which is kind of funny, <laughs> but they were gaining a lot of ground. Um, in 1976, though, the PQ won the government for the first time, taking 71 of 110 seats available, so that was actually a pretty sizable majority. Levesque became Premier of Quebec and provided cause for celebration for many French-speaking Quebecers. It did also result in, ex in an accelerated migration of the province's Anglophone population and related economic activity to Ontario and Toronto in particular. Yeah. Levesque was definitely not popular with the Anglophone, no. uh, Anglophone Quebecois. For good reason. Yeah. Um, the first PQ government was known as the Republic of Professors because <laughs> of the large number of scholars that Levesque had in his cabinet. And the PQ was the first government to recognize the rights of indigenous peoples to self-determination insofar as it did not affect the territorial integrity of Quebec. <laughs> So, like, wow. you can self-determine, but if it means that you're going to challenge our colonial borders, no. Yeah. Remember this for later. <laughs> yeah. The most prominent legacy of the PQ, though, is the Charter of the French Language, or Bill 101, which is still in place. This bill was a framework law which defines the linguistic primacy of French in the province and seeks to make French the common public language of Quebec. It allowed the advancement of Francophones towards management roles because until then, they were largely out of their reach. As despite the fact that the population was overwhelmingly French-speaking and didn't understand English, the language of management in most medium and large-sized businesses was still in English. So that's actually just one example of like a limited upward mo mobility for French Canadians in Canada. And it is like a very like legitimate grievance to have. So, however, critics of this law, both French-speaking and English-speaking, um, there were plenty of Anglo or Francophones who didn't like this law either, said that the charter limited citizens' linguistic choice and it forbade immigrants and Quebecers of French descent from attending English-speaking schools funded by the state. Uh, the law had, has now been amended more than 77 times, and every single time it's amended, it's still controversial, but the law is still in place. <laughs> I, I think it's the most amended bill in Canadian history. The Indian Act is up there. Okay, yeah, good point. But, but yeah, <laughs> like Bill 101, it's it's still like it comes up every few years and you and all of us are just like, oh, for fuck's sake. And it is still like extremely. It's still it's, it's actually an unconstitutional bill. Yeah, but but they haven't ratified the Constitution. Yeah, so I'll get into that. Here we are. I'll um, get into that. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, another result of the October crisis was the shift in the role of the Canadian military. The leadership of the Canadian Armed Forces were not impressed that the military was being deployed as an aid to civil power. Uh, their traditional role, up until that point, was to fight against the Red Army in Central Europe if World War III was ever to break out. So the military was happy doing Cold War shit, and then all of a sudden they had to do some home front shit, and they were like, mm, not what we do, though. Yeah. <laughs> during Lester B. Pearson's time, and even more during Trudeau, there was a tendency to cut military spending and shift the role of the Armed Forces over to more as an internal security force. In 1968 and 69, Trudeau even seriously considering seriously considered pulling Canada out of NATO, but only to, ended up staying to avoid damaging relationships with the U.S. and Western Europe, because it would have been real fucking awkward if a founding nation of NATO decided to bail like 20 years after it started. <laughs> It'd be kind of awkward. Especially a country that actually, like, needs NATO. <laughs> in early 1970, the government produced a white paper called Defense in the 70s, which stated the, quote, priority one of the Canadian forces would be to uphold internal security rather than prepare for World War III, which of course meant a sharp cut in military spending since the future enemy was now envisioned to be the FLQ and not the Red Army. 
There's a very big difference in those two things. <laughs> <laughs> Much to the dismay of the generals, Trudeau used the October crisis as an argument for transforming the Canadian forces, almost called them farces again, into a force whose priority one was internal security. By the end of the 1970s, Canada's military had been transformed by Trudeau into an internal security force, so much so that it was actually not capable of fighting a major conventional war. Good. Yeah. Wow. So, like, if you're anti-militarist, it's a good thing. Which I am, but... But also it just meant that the, the military was just at home more, which wasn't yeah. great either, No, I guess. that's not, definitely not great. It's not really what we wanted. No. Finally, in 1988, the War Measures Act was replaced by the Emergencies Act and then the Emergency Preparedness Act. And then recently, the Emergency Preparedness Act was also just replaced by something else, like five years ago. Yeah. <laughs> which I think is actually what's currently somewhat in place because of COVID. Yeah, I think so. I think there's also... Emergency or... Measures Act is the new act. So as Lindsay mentioned, René Levesque managed to win a landslide victory in 1976. And it was during the campaign, Levesque promised to hold a referendum on sovereignty during the fir his first term in, of his government. One obstacle remained in the way, however, and this obstacle was named Pierre Trudeau. <laughs> Levesque was so intimidated by Trudeau's fierce federalist stances, he did not want to hold such a referendum while Trudeau remained prime minister for, you know, obvious reasons. The opportunity came when the progressive conservatives under Joe Clark won a majority, won a minority government, excuse me, in the 1979 federal elections. Having a minority in the House, Clark made the choice not to interfere in the referendum, meaning provincial leader, provincial liberal leader, Claude Ryan, would have to lead the charge against sovereignty. Levesque announced the referendum would move forward, setting the date for spring 1980. However, not long after this, a disaster struck for the Yes or We campaign before the year's end. Clark's government was brought down in a confidence motion over the budget, leading to a snap election called for February. Trudeau rescinded his resignation as Liberal Party leader and on election night brought the Liberals back into government with a small majority. Trudeau quickly became the icon for the No campaign. If you know about anything about Joe Clark, the, really the only thing he's remembered for is he was prime minister for six months, yeah. and you know not all the other good things he was act. He was actually a he's a. Actually, I liked I liked actually Joe. Was a really good politician. I really like Joe. I, he's still really active and like one of the most progressive politicians. I actually haven't followed Joe Clark in a long time, but he's still around. Still around. Hi, Joe. <laughs> Trudeau focused on the referendum's question, attacking its lack of clarity and claiming it would simply lead to political deadlock. Trudeau did declare if the, if the vote was yes, he would meet in Ottawa with Levesque but would not negotiate sovereignty. However, he stated even if the vote was no, that didn't mean he would still not make he would not still make changes. He promised to renew con the confederation process. In his final speech prior to the vote, Trudeau made a fierce attack on Levesque accusing him of causing division at a time when the, much of the rest of the world was seeking unity and cooperation. And I have a clip right now. When the whole world is interdependent, when Europe is trying to seek some kind of political union, these people in Quebec and in Canada want to split it up. They want to take it away from their children. They want to break it down. No, that's our answer. The referendum went ahead on May 20th, 1980. The final results were 40.44% yes 
59.56% no. At a speech following the results, Levesque accepted the results and said to the crowd on and on live television, quote, My dear friends, if I understand you correctly, you're saying until next time, end quote. Mes chers amis, si je vous ai bien compris, vous êtes en train de dire à la prochaine fois. He continued by attacking the Trudeau government, saying it was, quote, scandalously immoral, end quote, for them to have been involved with the campaign. He also called on Trudeau to make good on his promises to make changes to the Constitution. After, he asked the audience to help him sing Jean de Paix as he had begun to lose his voice. And Jean de Paix is the song at the beginning of this episode, and it is also known as the Quebec National Anthem because it pretty much was written to be. <laughs> in the days following the referendum, Trudeau called a First Minister's Conference, inviting all the premiers of Canada to attend. We actually talked about this a little bit in the Lougheed episode. Almost immediately, a deadlock began to form, with Levesque actually siding with the other dissident premiers, which included Alberta's own Peter Lougheed in their push for decentralization of power. Not wanting to risk complete deadlock, Trudeau decided to begin the process of repatriating the Canadian Constitution from the United Kingdom, draft the Charter of Rights, and allow constitutional amendments to be approved by referendum. And he did it. <laughs> Go back and listen to our Confederation episode because we talk about this one at length. Yes. But yeah, literally the Constitution of Canada was in a filing cabinet in London, the, in London. <laughs> until the, until this point. Which is just so ridiculous. Yeah, it's like, really? <laughs> what? 1980, like, come on. <laughs> and we're still under the British North America Act. Like, what the fuck? <laughs> what is this? Well, also the Westminster Act, but come on. Around this time, dissent amongst Quebec Federalists and Anglophones also began to rise. On May 8th, 1984... Denis Lochte, a corporal in the Canadian Army, put in motion a potentially devastating plan. Lochte was born and raised in Quebec and served in the Royal Vendusium Regiment, which is also known as the Vendus. I'm not sure how much they like being called that, but... Um, on May 8th, he entered the CJRP radio station in Quebec City and introduced himself as Mr. D to the woman at the reception. The two had a short, friendly chat, and he left her a cassette tape asking her not to listen to it until 10.30 that morning. Then he left. However, the station manager decided to open and listen. On the tape, Lorty explained his disdain for the Parti Québécois and vowed he would destroy the Quebec government. The station immediately called the police, but by then it was too late. In the meantime, Lorty had traveled to the National Assembly building dressed in his combat fatigues and armed with a submachine gun and pistol. He entered through a side door and mortally wounded the receptionist, then killed a messenger in the hallway. After wounding two others, he stormed into the assembly chamber. However, and to his surprise, it was empty. Lorty had initially planned to assassinate Levesque and several other cabinet members, and he planned to begin the attack at 10 a.m. when the parliamentary committee meeting had begun. He planned his attack not by looking at his watch, but by listening to the radio, 
listening to a radio segment and waiting for it to end, which was normally at 10 o'clock. However, on this day, the, the host had ended the segment 20 minutes early. Therefore, when Lorty had entered the assembly, the meeting had not yet begun. Lorty opened fire in the chamber, killing two employees and wounding a further 11. No politicians were present, and he then sat on the speaker's chair as police began surrounding the building, and the standoff ensued. There's actually video of him in the chamber. This, at this point, the sergeant of uh, at arms, René Gerbert, was informed of the situation, and instead of either fleeing or taking up arms, Gerbert calmly walked to the assembly chamber. He greeted Lorty, who stood startled and demanded to know why he was there, then fired several shots inches away from Gerbert's face. Gerbert didn't even flinch. Gerbert remained calm and informed Lorty he was once a soldier in the Van Dues as well, even showing Lorty his discharge card. Lorty began to relax and chat with Gilbert, who soon invited him up to his office. Lorty agreed and left the chamber. In his office, Gilbert began negotiations with Lorty. In the end, Lorty agreed to, to allow the hostages to go, and Gilbert agreed to have Lorty taken into police, taken into custody by military police as he refused to, to surrender to civilian police. After four hours of negotiations, Lorty surrendered and was taken into custody without further incident. For his actions, Gilbert was awarded, awarded the Cross of Valor in the exact same assembly chambers in which the incident took place. And honestly, it's weird because nobody ever talks about this incident ever. It's the second, it's I think only the second time that a, a, a government building in Canada has ever been attacked. And like this was the most probably the most me well other than a certain one that happened a few years ago this was like yeah pretty yeah lefty was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia and later pled guilty to second degree murder in 1987 he was released to a halfway home in 1995 under strict rules he actually followed he was granted full parole in 1996 and has since kept the rollo profile without further incidents and as far as i could find out he's responding well to treatment for his schizophrenia and i guess i last they heard anyone heard he was working at a grocery store in quebec just you know kind of under the way the radar so i guess good 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 on him i yeah. suppose like i mean it's weird to kind of give praise to someone like that but it's like look if he did his time and if he's actually responding to and not causing further incident, then who are we really to judge, right? <laughs> I mean, the goal of, like, isn't the goal of, I mean, isn't yeah, the goal should the, be. The goal should be yeah. <laughs> rehabilitation anyway. So yeah, and if someone's if like, it works, great. And if someone's acting on, like, on, in men, on cases of, met, like, for mental illness, yeah. then it should absolutely be treatment over. And Lortiz just happens to be an example of that. He's responding well to treatment. So, yeah, and Gilbert passed away from cancer in 1996, and he definitely does not get the. He should be a household name, in my opinion. I think he is in Quebec, but oh. he definitely should be in the rest of Canada because say what you want about Rene Levesque, he did, or like he definitely, I don't think he deserved to be assassinated. No. I mean, he wasn't assassinated, but he didn't deserve to be. Not, nor the cabinet members, nor the people who died in the attack. No. So, yeah. 
And yeah, this was the second time in Canadian history a government assembly was attacked after someone attempted to bomb the parliament buildings. So, Brian Mulroney was elected prime minister in 1984, and he brings kind of shivers down the spines of a lot of Canadians. <laughs> Bringing in the first conservative government in Canada in 26 years as well as the, with, the major, with the largest majority in Canadian history. He won 214 out of the 300 and somewhat seats. He was an interesting case as he managed to win the support of Western Canadian social conservatives, Quebec nationalists, and uh, the fiscal conservatives in the Maritimes. Should note, Mulroney was born in Quebec, but he's an, he's an Anglophone. He, he's an Irish Quebecois. When the Constitution was repatriated in 1982, Quebec had not, and in fact still has not, signed on. Mulroney prioritized bringing Quebec into the fold. As part of his campaign during the election, Mulroney had promised to negotiate amendments to the Constitution, particularly in terms of Quebec. Mulroney called a conference to be held at Wilson House, Meech Lake, in Quebec's Gatineau Hills. All provincial premiers were invited to attend and it would be the only and they would be the only participants in the conference along with Mulroney. No aides and no other types of politicians were allowed or were invited. At the conference, five amendments to the constitution were agreed upon. The first was Quebec would be recognized as a distinct society, with Quebec Anglophones and Francophones from elsewhere in Canada also being recognized. Increased provincial powers to, in respect to immigration. Federal financial compensation would be granted to the provinces who would choose to opt out of future federal programs, which were exclusive to matters of provincial jurisdiction. I think the NEP had something to do with this being included. <laughs> Senate and Supreme Court appointees would now be chosen from a selection of names given to the PM by the provincial premiers and would not simply be chosen just because the premier wanted them. Any further amendments to the Constitution would require the consent and approval of every province and the federal government. This includes Senate reforms and electoral reform for the House of Commons. Quebec became the first province to ratify the Meech Lake Accord in June, on June 23, 1987. However, the remaining nine provinces would need to ratify. At this point, it looked optimistic the remaining provinces would actually go through with it. However... Once again, Trudeau would be at the center of opposition. He accused Mulroney of giving the country away to the provinces in order to divert responsibility away from the federal government, which I actually kind of agree with. By the Accord's third anniversary, three quarters of Canadians began to oppose the ratification. The process officially halted in Manitoba. The deadline for ratification was approaching and the Manitoba legislature needed unanimous consent to push an emergency debate to put the accord to a vote. During the process, Elijah Harper of the Red Sucker Lake First Nation and MLA for Rupert's Land raised an eagle feather in protest. He argued, which in our opinion correctly, the First Nations were not given proper were not given any representation in negotiations of the accord. Furthermore, at this time, the First Nations were not considered a distinct nation in Canada, and as far as I know, they still aren't. And he was opposed to Quebec receiving such a distinction before the First Nations people were, which in my in my 
opinion, I agree that the Quebec should be recognized as a distinct nation, but if they think they're going to get the, that distinction before the First Nations or the Métis, they're out of their minds. Like, that's my only stipulation with it. You know, like, does that make sense? Yes. Harper began a filibuster, which delayed the process. Realizing there would not be enough time to debate and vote, Newfoundland Premier Clyde Wells decided to cancel the vote on the accord. Without a vote in either Manitoba or Newfoundland, the Meech Lake Accord died. Outrage spread throughout Quebec, with even Federalist Bourassa angrily addressing a crowd stating, Quebec is today and forever a distinct society, end quote. Nationalism in, in Quebec once again skyrocketed in, skyrocketed in popularity as it was seen the other provinces had let them down. Angered by the alienation and the Accord's defeat, Lucien Bouchard left the Progressive Conservatives and formed what is known as the Bloc Québécois, or what we everyone else known as the Bloc. The party ran on a na Quebec nationalist agenda, advocating for Quebec sovereignty from within the House of Commons itself. So it basically gave Quebec nationalists a voice within the federal chambers. In their first election in 1993, the Bloc managed to gain 54 out of Quebec's 75 seats, with the other party split between the newly founded Reform Party. I was just, I had to include that in there. I was just wanting to make sure you guys were paying attention. <laughs> and Lindsay is dying. <laughs> Every time. So between them, the NDP, and the disintegrating progressive conservatives, the bloc was able to form the official opposition. <laughs> it's just, yeah, it's just ridiculous to be that a nationalist party can form the official opposition, albeit only 54 seats. But it's still ridiculous. I mean, the liberals still had a pretty comfortable majority under... Yeah, guess what? Jean Cartier. The bloc was made up of former progressive conservatives and liberals united under the common goal of Quebec independence. With the bloc as official opposition and the Parti Québécois re-elected to government in Quebec, plans went forward to push in another sovereignty referendum only 14 years after the first one. New Premier Jacques Parizeau had promised to hold another sovereignty referendum in his first term in office, and now that he had a majority in the assembly, he put forward his plans. A referendum was called for October 30th, 1995, and the campaigning began. The No campaign mostly focused their arguments against independent Quebec, saying it would face uncertainty if independent without the guarantee of being involved in NAFTA. The Yes campaign stated Quebec would continue to use the Canadian dollar and Canadian passports. However, Prime Minister Jean Chrétien said he, he would not agree to either of these and that an independent Quebec would need to use its own currency and issue its own passports, which, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The actual, like, logistics of separation, I don't think anybody who's actually a separatist, like, understands the real logistics of separating and, like, how bad it would be and, like, I think everyone who was pro-Brexit is seeing that now. Yeah. Like well, like, look look at how difficult it's going to be Quebec for Quebec. And people think it's possible for Alberta. Yeah. Like, what the fuck? And Quebec. And, like, if, if any province in, um, in Canada could theoretically succeed based on just population and, like, economy, things like, like, size of economy, things like that, it would be Quebec. 
Yeah, they would still go bankrupt. But they would. Ab- but that's just it, right? Yeah. Like, if anybody could do it, just based on like population things like that, it could be them or Ontario. Yeah, but they or, would still fail. Like, yeah. Whereas Alberta would go bankrupt instantly. In like 10 Quebec seconds. would. They'd Quebec hang on would, for like five. Quebec months. would be like five five months, maybe. Nah. Alberta would go bankrupt in like 10 seconds. Quebec would get like five minutes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> On October 27th, three days before the vote, a massive rally was held in Montreal's Place du Canada. A hundred thousand people from Quebec and the rest of Canada gathered together to plead for a no vote and celebrate a united Canada. The rally amassed a great controversy as it was revealed many businesses located outside Quebec used this opportunity to make financial donations to the no campaign which was against quebec law however in a court case later it was determined this law did not apply to companies who are located outside the province and therefore they could not face they could not face fines or anything the result came down to the wire and i'm not i'm not i cannot stress this enough in the end 49.42 percent voted yes and 50.58 percent voted no we came that close. <laughs> Following the referendum, questions began to rise over the valid validity of the Quebec legislature having the sole decision on Quebec's fate in terms of sovereignty. The case, known as Reference Resuccession of Quebec, was brought before the Supreme Court in 1998. It questioned whether the Constitution of Canada granted the right for the Quebec National Assembly or government to bring about Quebec's succession and if this was allowed under international law. In the final decision, the Supreme Court found the process of Quebec's government to declare unilateral succession from Canada to be unconstitutional. A clear vote in a referendum with a clear question would be the only way it could legally do so. In 2000, the Chrétien government proposed Bills C-20, later known as the Clarity Act. The bill proposed the establishment of the conditions for negotiations between the federal government and any successful succession vote by one of the provinces to take place. It was passed in May, March 2000, and it was this was known as Chrétien's Plan B. The last major development in Chrétien's premiership was this, the discovery of the sponsorship scandal. In short, the federal government under Chrétien's liberals made increased efforts to raise awareness of federal government's contributions to Quebec industry while undermining the Parti Québécois government. Between 1996 and 2004, the government was involved in several illegal and corrupt activities surrounding the program. This included the diverting of sponsorship money to firms linked to the Liberal Party who did little to nothing to deserve such funding. The scandal was discovered after an examination by Auditor General Sheila Frazier in 2004. She found several Quebec communications agencies were paid over $100 million in commissions, despite having done no work other than make donations to the party. The scandal gained national media attention and was seen as the reason for the Liberal Party defeat in the 2006 election, ending 12 years in power. So, in November 2006, newly elected Prime Minister Stephen Harper, uh, once again opened the, up the possibility of recognizing the Quebecois as a distinct nation. The idea came about during the federal election a few months earlier. Liberal leader Michael Ignatieff bounced around the idea during his campaign. This was criticized as a going against his previous ideas surrounding civic nationalism as the proposal was, sound, was sounding to be eth- more ethnically national in tone. 
Having a minority government at the time, Harper used such a proposal as a means to get in good terms with the opposition liberals and the bloc. On November 22nd, Harper tabled the newly named Quebecois Nation motion, well ahead of the bloc's attempt to table a similar motion. The official wording of the motion read that this house recognized that the Quebecois form a nation within a united Canada, end quote. Keep in mind the, the language around that. 283 MPs voted for the motion and it was passed. However, this was done purely as a symbolic gesture and there's no legal changes as a result. It's just, you know, saying, hey, we recognize you, but we're not doing anything about it. <laughs> In 1998, former Deputy Prime Minister, albeit briefly, he was only Deputy Prime Minister maybe at most three months, and former Progressive Conservative leader Jean Charest, or was elected leader of the Quebec Liberal Party. Initially, Charest had declined to become the Liberal leader, but he faced a staggering amount of public pressure to do so. Famously, while he was a guest on a radio show, he, the host wrapped Charest in a Canadian flag and begged him to save Quebec. We have some quirky people here. <laughs> One way of putting it. Yeah. In 1998, a provincial... I wouldn't be surprised if that radio station was like in Alberta. I don't think it was, but it wouldn't shock me. In the 1998 provincial elections, liberals managed to capture the popular vote, but only came in second in terms of number of seats. Charest finally made massive gains in the 2003 elections, where the Liberals broke nine years of Parti Québécois rule in Quebec, gaining a comfortable 76-seat majority. Charest began implementing a series of neoliberal policies. This included a 5% GST cut, and he declined to increase the, progress the provincial sales tax. They also continued the Parti Québécois government's policy of tax breaks and subsidies for families with children. Part of his plan was to balance the budget, was uh, including austerity measures. This led to the cut of $103 million worth of student grants and instead redistributed towards student loans. This sparked outrage among students in Quebec. The Quebec Federation of University Students, or the FEUQ, and the Fédération Étudiant Collégial de Québec, or FECQ, quickly denounced the plans. In late January 2005, student unions around the province voted to coordinate a strike. On February 24th, 30,000 students walked out of class and went on strike. FECQ and FEUQ called for further strikes on March 4th and 9th. By March 15th, 100,000 students had joined the strike. Somewhere around 80,000 students led a peaceful march through Montreal in what was, at that time, the largest student protest in Quebec. Eventually, the government decided to negotiate and an agreement was made between the unions and the Quebec government. The government reinstated the $103 million grants for the next four years, which would come from a combination of the Millennial Grant Foundation, the provincial government, and the federal government. The protests were largely supported by the Parti Québécois, who used it to regain a relationship with Quebec students. This would not be the last student protest that Giray would face. It, the, the problem with Quebec is like their nationalist politicians suck, but so do their federalist provincial politicians. Yeah, they're all kind of shit. <laughs> they're all kind of bad, yeah. Charest would remain premier until 2012 when a second controversial measure would bring him at odds with students yet again. The Charest cabinet decided to put forward a proposal to raise tuition fees from $2,168 
to $3,793 between 2012 and 2018. This once again angered the FECQ and the FEUQ, and another student strike was called. By the end of February, 9% of Quebecois students were on strike. Many wore red flags to identify themselves with others. On February 23rd, which is my birthday, <laughs> police used pepper spray on students who were peacefully occupying the Jacques Cartier Bridge in Montreal. Police were criticized further when they used flashbangs and tear gas on students peacefully holding a sit-in demonstration at Lotto, Quebec. One student, Francis Gagnier, received a serious wound to his eye by a flashbang explosion. After this, many, others, many protesters wore eye patches in solidarity with him. On March 22nd, 200,000 students gathered in downtown Montreal with the protests stretching over 50 blocks. This is the largest student protest in Quebec history and I believe in Canadian history. In response to the growing protest, Sheree and Michel Kourchanis drafted Bill 78. This would have suspended the school semester and limit the rights to protest. The bill came under immediate fire from within Quebec and across Canada. The Quebec Human Rights Commission declared the bill impeded fundamental rights in a 56-page review, charging it goes against the minimal requirements of the Quebec Charter of Rights and Freedoms. The bill even reached the attention of the UN High Commission, which denounced it as taking away their, quote, rights to freedom of association and a peaceful assembly, end quote. I remember how big of a deal this was. You kind of remember a I little did. bit? I remember how massive this was. I mean, I was in school at the time yeah. as a journalist student in the education beat. So I definitely heard a lot about this, but I just heard a lot about this in general. It was mad. It was big. Mm-hmm. Opposition parties also quickly went on the attack, particularly the PQs who hoped to capitalize this during an election year. The protests and subsequent controversy over Bill 78 greatly diminished Chiray's already dire popularity, and on September 4, 2012, the Parti Québécois once again formed the government following the election, albeit with a majority, or with a minority. Pauline Marois, who was the PQ leader at the time, was not a great person. She she really kind of went, said some stuff that was, that was rather anti-immigrant immigration anti-anglophone and it worried a lot of xenophobic yeah i mean the the party and the bloc have the yeah the 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 sovereigntist parties in quebec have very much like galvanized around anti-immigration and and pretty obviously racist policies yeah the only one that i can name that hasn't is quebec solidaire yeah but that's because quebec solidaire is it's a left-wing nationalist but they really they they were formed out of basically a reaction to a reaction to the like, <clears throat> move to the right by the other well that well part. in terms of like in, on immigration yeah. and yeah, yeah so Pauline Marois was set to commence her victory speech at the Metropolis Theater when suddenly she was rushed off the stage by members of her security detail the crowd was left stunned and confused as nothing was explained eventually a man emerged and explained the premier elect was at risk and she was rushed off for her safety she soon came out to reassure the crowd she was safe, but the building was ordered to be evacuated. What had happened backstage was definitely a major incident. A man approached the back of the theater with an AK-47 style rifle. 
He shot and killed stage tech Denis Blanchette and injured Dave Courage, who was who managed to escape. He then used gasoline and a road flare to set a fire to the backstage before he was tackled and arrested by police. As he was being led away, he looked at and shouted at nearby reporters, Les Anglais survivent, which translates to the English are waking up, and then continued saying, it's going to be fucking payback. It was later determined the gunman was an Anglophone Québécois man who held a deep hatred for the Parti Québécois. He also expressed his belief Montreal should separate from Quebec and remain a part of Canada if Quebec ever became independent. The gunman was found guilty of second-degree murder and is now serving a life sentence. So quite a interesting start to your premiership. Yeah. I mean, it's terrifying. It is terrifying. I remember watching it live when it happened and then she's just rushed off and we're just kind of like, Okay. Yeah. I something's remember, happening. I remember that too. Like we're just like, okay, something's happening, and then, and then nothing was explained. Like for the longest time, even the even the news reporters like, okay, something just happened. Yeah. So, Marois' rocky start to her premiership soon turned into controversy. Despite support for Quebec sovereignty being at an all-time low, she and her government continued to push for another sovereignty referendum. This is where her biggest failing was, like one of her biggest failings was. The reason why, and I, I, I believe this is the reason, and I totally believe that I'm right, the reason why people voted for the bloc, or for the party was not because they supported separatism. I don't. Th I think most people didn't who voted yeah. for them. It's because they hated the liberals and there was no real other alternative. And the Conservative Party in Quebec has been pretty like weak for a long time and the Liberal Party, yeah, they were very hated. Well, well so. the Liberal Party is basically, it's like in BC, it's basically the Conservative, yeah. like they're more a neoliberal. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's changing a bit again now, but yeah. I mean, at the time of Chere especially well Sheree funny enough lost his own seat in this election <laughs> so there's that but um, but that <laughs> history is about to repeat here though but anyway they they elect they voted for her not for her sovereigntist policies or immigration policies but for her education ones and because they wanted the liberals out one of the, her initiatives was the Quebec Charter of Values among the provisions the most controversial was limiting the was the limiting of wearing of conspicuous religious symbols by state personnel. This included jewelry bearing religious symbols, kippahs, turbans, hijabs, and niqabs, among other things. The proposal was almost unanimously opposed by Quebec opposition parties and by the rest of Canada. Even the former Parti Québécois leader and premier Perzeau was against the charter. In an attempt to get the charter passed, Marois called for a snap election. The Liberals, now led by the more relaxed and moderate Philippe Coulart, capitalized on the opposition to the charter, stating he would not put forward means to pass it. The Liberals won a majority of the seats with a majority in the election with 70 seats and a voter turnout of 71%. Marois lost her own seat and as a result resigned as party leader for the Parti Québécois. Couillard, I don't think he was a great, he was, he wasn't a great politician, but he was a smart man. Yeah, I agree. And he was also a moderate. And the other thing is like, I, I, I totally believe this. So I'm just going to speak my mind. I think the only, like the reason why Marois and the Parti Québécois made this charter of values, like with this much controversy 
is because they wanted the rest of Canada to throw a fit. And so they could point the finger saying, look, they don't like us. I mean, I could be wrong, but yeah. I totally, but knowing what Marois is like. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because I do remember that election, obviously, but I actually like forgot about it until now. Yeah. I, I haven't paid that much attention to contemporary Quebec politics, I'll admit. Like, I haven't really. What was this, like, these, the, the election, like, the, the election which she was, like, the one she was elected in? Yeah. was scary for a lot of people in Quebec, particularly yeah. minorities. Cause they, it was like, terrifying. They were absolutely terrified. And then she got elected, but with a major- minority. So that helped. but It did help. And then she ended up getting, like, losing a... Well, she ended up calling an election two years later. Yeah. And then lost. Rightfully so. Yeah. The one thing I definitely, like... The one, like, undercurrent of Quebec politics that I really just have picked up on in the last decade really that has mostly just been the one that i've focused on because it's the one that really just shows up all the time is just how much like xenophobia and like anti-immigration has shaped like their elections because like and not just provincially but federally like and how the block runs and how the conservative party has done there yeah federally like they did really well there or they didn't like they the the block did really really well there recently because like the conservatives weren't campaigning hard enough against (laughs) Yeah. immigrants and stuff like yeah. the block the block's most recent campaigns were like not even trying to hide <laughs> yeah yeah i've heard that i don't sentiment. believe i don't believe that the people of quebec are overwhelmingly racist no they're not like, the pol- <laughs> any like, more than they, anywhere else and like, you, because and the reason why is because bernier lost his seat yeah <laughs> so good <laughs> anyway um so uh yeah it was just it was a bernier scary wasn't part of the block but yeah i know but he was still, yeah but i'm but i'm saying he, he was a racist it, yeah. Totally. Pieces yet, but I don't think Quebec is any more racist than the rest of white Canada. <laughs> no, I, I don't. They do have quite a bit of an issue with race. Well, I mean, Canada does in general, but... Um, it's a bit different there. I do think that they've experienced, like... like it's it's. Di- I think it's a little different because of the language thing, too. Like, most people who have immigrated to Quebec have been French-speaking yeah. immigrants, but that's still, like, somehow problematic. Yeah, well, I think it's definitely more to do with the government, because here's yeah. the thing. How bad can you be that the the First Nations band would rather stay with the federal government than with the literally, literally with would rather be governed Quebec. by the Indian Act? Yeah, <laughs> like than an the independent most racist Quebec. piece of policy. And that's one. Re- I think that's one of the main reasons why Quebec sovereignty failed in 1995 is because uh, the premier, like Bouchard, said that he wouldn't allow, he wouldn't accept First Nations' right to not su- succeed. And I think that's what helped kind of kill it. I mean, it was still close, but that was a massive blow to the... Yeah. But I'm going to quickly touch on another group that's actually created an interesting trend. And what I would say is Quebec has actually finally found its real identity. Because <laughs> they've like dabbled with federalism and with sovereignty. And they're like, well, none of these are really working. What do we do? Starting in the... Nine, this started in around in the 90s. A new party known as the Action Démocratique de Québec formed and sought to find a third option to solve discontent within Quebec. While joined by Quebec nationalists and even founded by Quebec nationalists, the party instead called for increased autonomy for the province within Canada. The party also sought to please conserve more of the more conservative voters. The party saw minor success over the, the years, even forming the opposition after the 2007 election. However, the PQ liberal rivalry was still strong and they went 
right back down from 34 to 7 seats in the following election. Following the 2008 election, ADQ reformed with former PQ members into the Coalition Avenir Quebec, also known as CAC. <laughs> the new party is still led by François Legault. A former advocate of sovereignty, Legault has since shifted away from independence sentiments, understanding this is not the desire of the Quebecois. He formed CAC as a means to bring nationalists and federalists together, again under the idea of calling for increased autonomy instead. Legault has pledged his party will never call in a referendum as long as they are in government and has pledged to continue to support the rights of Anglophones and other minorities in, within Quebec. CAC came on top in the 2018 election, becoming the first party other than the Liberals or PQs to win since 1966. In March 2019, Legault's government passed Bill 21 with the help of the PQs. The bill, titled An Act Respecting the Laicity of the State, banned public workers in positions of authority from wearing religious symbols. This also extended to law enforcement, governmental lawyers, judges, school administration, teachers, and crown prosecutors. The bill also finally removed the crucifix in the National Assembly chamber that hanged over the Speaker's chair. And I guess, like, one of the things I need to explain that I was, like, actually directly, like, re referred to from a primary source is Quebec has just had a long, like, we've explained here, Quebec has just had a long, bad history with the church having so much, with the Catholic Church having just so much power in politics and there was for the longest time no separation between church and state so i can understand that kind of fear of that kind of authority like religious authority coming back into politics but for me i don't think the wearing of religious symbols by such workers is a threat like you know like do you know what i mean like I don't think it's threatening for, like, it's going to threaten the separation of church and state if a public employee for the state wears, like, a cross or yeah. a hijab or a turban. No, I think the problem with the law in the first place is that it was very obvious that it wasn't really going to persecute Catholics. <laughs> well, this one, like, that was oh, yeah. absolutely, because Legault, and it, to give, I don't, I still don't agree with the law, but to give credit where credit's due, he actually removed the damn crucifix that, uh, from the House of Assembly, whereas yeah, Marois was that like... That Duplessis had put up. <laughs> yeah, well, because um, Marois was like, they were asked, well, you're going to remove the crucifix, right? And she's like, no. Yeah. And people were like, what the fuck? <laughs> yeah. Like... No, I I do... Like, I don't... I guess, yeah, I, I'm with you. I still don't agree with the law. Um, Only in the fact that, yeah, like, I don't think that people personally choosing to wear a crucifix or a star of david or whatever insert religious symbol here in your day-to-day -day life is really threatening the the separation of church and state i think having a you know a giant crucifix in the legislative assembly does more more of that than yeah. than people wearing you know crosses yeah, to work because like i don't know like i have a i have a necklace that has a celtic yeah. pagan symbol on it. i'm not celtic yeah. pagan but it has significant meaning to me that I'm not, I'm not going to go into but it has it's just like it has significant meaning to me and like one of my profs in school shout out Keith Brownsey who is awesome he stated like basically what what'll happen is that people will like a woman who like a woman who's 
like wearing a cross that was given to her by a late grandmother. Yeah. She doesn't wear it for religious reasons. She wears it because it reminds her of her grandma. Now she can't wear it. Yeah. Like that's the like that's, that's a, really yeah. the the whole where it boils down. But it's also and he's also like to deny public workers from wearing like their turban. Yeah. Or their kippah. Yeah. It's like yeah. I remember the Beaverton did a great article. Uh, Quebec government argues law can't be Islamophobic if also anti-Semitic. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but yeah. So I guess that's like, I I already spoiled spoiled the moral for the for the episode at the beginning. But yeah, it's like we're the world is becoming so much more divided right now. Like, look at the states right now. Yeah. Kind of a bad time and thankfully the like like credit where credit's due lego has actually done a good job of like you know keeping his promise not to a hold a referendum or b be overly separatist even though he identifies as he well he He, does and he doesn't like he he says he personally he definitely he definitely identifies more as a separatist than i would say like the average quebecer these days like in terms of like like there's the level of like interest and separation is quite low in general. So he's probably like, he's not even that adamant as one. And he's probably one of the more like separatist of separatists now. Right. Yeah. And he's, he, like, he's just a good, good show of where, like, honestly, the sentiment for that is in, in Quebec. Right? Yeah, exactly. And he's like, you know what? I'm smart enough to know that this isn't what the Quebecois wants. So exactly. Like he, that's yeah. Like, I think he's a really good example of kind of where the sentiment lies. Like there are people who still want it, but for the most part, it's not really a hotbed issue. Yeah, he's anymore. basically acting the way Mahua should have. Exactly. Yeah. Where she was like holding blinders, like holding I think blinders. She took, she took her election as a sign that people act. She she didn't fully understand why she won. Yeah. Is exactly. And what then happened. F- Philippe Coulard, the reason why he got elected <clears throat> is because he's like, look, I'm not Sheree. I will. Pro- I promise I'll keep these student things as as they are. I won't change anything the students and i won't hold a referendum <laughs> so well yeah so that's where quebec nationalism is basically now um i mean the other developments that block quebecois once again have most of the seats in quebec yeah which is stupid um and the block have uh, uh if you want proof that the block is xenophobic i will give you proof <laughs> <laughs> we have so much proof. I have a I have an election poster that they had in the most I, recent election, wasn't it? It was in this yeah. past election, and it is. So you know what, Jagmeet, you were right to call them racist. They are. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, well, I don't know about racist, but definitely xenophobic. I mean, xenophobia and racism are like not that different. They're in not. Reality, no, they're so. not different, but it's like it's more. They're kind of two sides of the same coin. Yeah, but I think it's more accurate to call them xenophobic because they have like it's specific. They have minority people within their party, but it's just like, well, they're they were born in Quebec, like yeah. that's the thing. So, yeah. Anyway, but that's. Uh, but I think a little bit of that is kind of like how there's always been the good. And words in the good. Yeah, like, yeah, I know what so. you mean. But it's like, and I'm not saying that as like, oh, it's they're actually not that yeah. bad. It's like, no, they're they're just as bad. It's, it's just, just more specifically it's more xenophobia specifically than racism. Of, yeah, exactly. It's probably like a a sixty forty split on the like sixty percent xenophobia, forty percent racism. Yeah, I also think that the anyway, we're, we'll just leave it there then. Uh, next episode is going to be different. 
we're gonna be putting together our fuck faces of history yeah so i guess we haven't really introduced we're into we're gonna introduce a new segment to the show called um the fuck faces of history power rankings so uh for those of you who don't know what a fuck face of history is or a power ranking um basically we're going to uh list all of the awful human beings we've talked about so far um in history and rank them on a list of who we think is the worst and uh with number one being the worst person of all time uh the greatest fuck face of all time is what we Call yeah, all, yeah almighty so, immoral fuckface yeah. is what I call it, but so I, I don't think we're going we, with that. Uh, yeah, so we have a couple ground rules. It'll be, you know, only people we've talked about in the show can be on the list, things like that. Uh, we'll talk about it more in the next episode, but the idea is that at the end of every Panastoria episode where we've talked about someone who we think can go on the list, uh, we'll have this little segment at the end of the show where we rank them, um, and then we'll update the rankings online for everyone to see. But uh, yeah, we think it'll be a lot of fun, so definitely make sure to check that one out because... Uh, we get to talk about awful people for an yeah. hour and that one will be another nonsense episode just to clarify <laughs> uh after that we're not sure what episode we're gonna do after this but we're gonna decide that before the new year at least and probably let you know in the next episode but yeah stay tuned for our new year's slash christmas episode which is us talking about fuck faces <laughs> let's see last year we talked about the romanian revolution was our christmas episode this is a happier episode and yeah it's a more fun this is more episode. levity this is more levity than the romania and ironically it was we'll explain this it was romania that led us to bring to to make this list it's all coming so. for us that's all coming our, our christmas episodes are apparently really uh like linking up every year now. yeah i mean the so. romania episode not the country sorry romania but <laughs> um anyway yeah that's i don't think you just follow us on our social media if you can um Follow, uh, if, if you can, please consider subscribing on Patreon so we can make better content. There's right. going to be more content up in the new year, hopefully. Well, uh, yeah, we'll talk more about that on Other Nonsense as well. Um, so, yeah, with that, I'm Lindsay. I'm Jonah. And we'll talk to you later. Have a good one. Also, buy Lindsay soap. Yes. She sells soap. Go to her <laughs> website. I'll post it on the, on the, on the page. Bye.